Imagine yourself standing before a 100-foot wave of ocean water. That's like a skyscraper. For most, I'm guessing, running to safety would be the first instinct that would kick in. But for today's guest, the immediate thought is singular. Grab your board and let's go surfing. Fear is something that we choose, something we manufacture in our mind. If we fully embrace the moment, fear does not exist. His name is Garrett McNamara, and he is an internationally recognized big wave surfer, one of the greatest to ever do it, who commanded global attention by surfing one of the world's largest waves. I just want to surf. The goal is to keep surfing. And has accomplished a myriad of other just absolutely insane surfing feats, like surfing waves generated by a 300-foot glacier in Alaska, surfing giant barrels breaking on shallow, jagged reefs, and on massive open ocean hurricane swells. Garrett and his team are also the subjects of the hit HBO docuseries you might have seen called The 100-Foot Wave, which thrillingly chronicles their pursuit of the largest waves in the world. There's nothing that we can't do if we put our mind to it. Season one is just a must-watch Emmy Award-winning series. It's a real-life, edge-of-your-seat filmmaking experience. And season two, which is scheduled to debut very soon, is uh, sure to continue that tradition. In today's conversation, we discuss Garrett's background, how he began surfing. We talk about the 100-foot wave quest and the docuseries that captured it all. And as an added bonus, Garrett's wife, Nicole, absolutely his partner in all things, joins the conversation at the end to enlighten us on the manifestation spiritual practice she and Garrett utilize to guide their decision-making and execute on their audacious goals. It's all coming right up, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, 
no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, Garrett, Nicole, gotta say, I really love this one. There's just something beautifully earnest and childlike about Garrett that I find very appealing. He has this sense of awe 
and wonder and joy that he naturally exudes. He's just, you know, he's, he's a character for sure. And Nicole is just an absolute delight. So I'm excited for you guys to hear this one. One final note, they did bring their newborn with them to the studio and from time to time, you're gonna hear a cry or two in the background. Do not fret, all is well. And with that, I give you the one, the only, Garrett McNamara and Nicole. Awesome, man. Uh, super nice to meet you. I'm really glad we could make this happen. I kind of feel like I know you though, because I've been <laughs> consuming so much of your uh, content, your adventures, your experiences, of course, the docu-series, which is unbelievable. And I, I presume that you're in Los Angeles because of the Emmys. Is that the main reason? That was the main reason, yeah. yeah. You guys took the W too. Oh, yeah, I couldn't believe it. It's uh, more than we expected from this whole mission, this right. whole journey. That's gotta be pretty surreal. I mean, the arc of everything that you've endured over many years to arrive at this place where you're on the receiving end of like so much recognition, you know, it's gotta be, you know, at times uh, a little bit uh, destabilizing or sort of, you know, strange. Yeah, it's really, um, I feel like it's like pinch me something like, is this really happening? And But then when we're in Portugal and Nazare and you're walking up the cliff and there's thousands of people and they're all, thank you. And, mm. take, and then you start crying with all these tears of joy and um, just gratitude. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really at the heart of what almost interests me the most about your story. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Alex Honnold after he had free soloed El Cap, but like a year before the movie came out. And through that conversation, I felt like I understood what he had accomplished. Similarly with yourself, like I'd seen all the video clips and I kind of thought I had a sense of what you were up to out there in Portugal. But it wasn't until I saw Free Solo and I watched the docu-series that I, I had a heavy dose of like, oh, you actually didn't really understand at all. Like there's so much more that went into this adventure than, than meets the eye. And it's only through like telling the story in real time with all this archival footage that you guys have that you can truly appreciate what has been accomplished here. And a big piece at the center of it is this community that you built that you, you know, took years to construct prior to even you know, dropping in on the huge wave that kind of made headlines around the world. Yeah, for us, it, it, it was 100% the, the team that we could not have done anything that we did without this amazing team. And in the beginning, we were all marching to the same beat with the same goals and desires. And, and it just was so effortless. And so it just, every day was just, a, so fun and enjoyable and, mm -hmm. and everybody was just happy all day, every day. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there was definitely some challenges <laughs> here <yeah>. and there. <laughs> there was a lot. I mean, what I took from it was that you really invested. Like, you're like, the only way this is ever gonna work is if I build a team and a network and generate community and consensus around this massive goal that I have. And that's by, you know, basically working with everyone in the community there to, you know, create a situation for success. Um, you know, without understanding that and watching the docu documentary, like I would have thought, oh, you just drop, you arrive there, you brought your towing guy, you got the wave runner and you just shoot out and you just check it out. You know, it wasn't that at all. And this was a different animal due to the fact that it was just a big 
beach break, a big closeout beach break that uh, was deemed impossible. Like a, a, a number of people went there before we went there and, and had everything, were ready, and said, no, it's impossible. You can't get back out. You might be able to ride away. If that jet ski comes in, it won't be able to go back out. Right. And uh, it was just uh, dumb luck or I don't know. I don't think it was dumb luck at all. Like I, I think it was an engineering problem that you took a lot of time to try to solve and figured out like a workaround to, to make it work. But maybe we should, I wanna get into your backstory because it's so you know insane, but let's talk about Nazare right now. Like for somebody who hasn't seen the docu-series and maybe only knows you as a guy who surfs big waves, like let's start at you know the beginning when you uh, you received this email and this invitation to go to Portugal. Uh, it, it came um, in like 2005 or seven, somewhere around there. And and he just, he emailed me saying- um, He's like a city commerce He guy, was a right? bodyboarder. commerce. And he worked for the, uh, in the mayor's office mm-hmm. and a branch of that called Nazare Kulifica. And he was in sport, had, um, in head of sports programs. And but as a child, he had been on that lighthouse, dreaming somebody surfing the big waves. And then that dream just until he was in a position to hunt to find somebody. He actually sent an email to Laird Hamilton first. Mm-hmm. Didn't get a reply. Then he sent one to Carlos Burley. Didn't get a reply. I was third. I was the third choice. <laughs> third on the list. <laughs> and, and he said, and I replied like, like that. He said, bam, I reply. But it was a number of years after that email before you took the first trip out there to scout it out. Well, my wife doesn't like to take credit for this, but I give her all the credit because that email was sitting there in my inbox from a while back when we met and she was going through all my emails, getting me organized. And then she came across that email and she's like, what this? And I'm like, oh, some some guys want me to go to Portugal and see if their wave's any good and any big. And the email said, "If can you come and test our wave and see if it's good and see if it's big? And if mm-hmm. it's good and big, can you help promote our town? Right. <laughs> and- uh, This little tiny fishing village. One month after she saw the email. You were there. There. So other surfers had, it wasn't, it wasn't like a total secret that there was a big wave there. It's just nobody had ever had the audacity to try it or how come like it took so long for people to notice what was happening there? It was deemed impossible. And Jose Gregorio, who's Quicksilver Portugal, Mm -hmm. awesome, good surfer, decent pilot. He tried, the guy sent me pictures of all their jet skis with just blowing apart yard sale. And so, they never went back. And then when I got there, toe surfing was now frowned upon. You know, there was the, the media and a group of surfers, and I don't know if they actually really planned it, but it really felt like it to mm-hmm. just kill toe surfing. And uh, so toe surfing was dead. It was frowned upon, unless maybe you're at Australia at a slab or Chopo when it gets too big and you can't mm-hmm. paddle. But even then it was like- Back and in so early, this is like, 2008, 2009, yep. and you get there in 2010. Yep. And it was, uh, to be very honest, there would still be nobody there today if we didn't actually give it a try. Right. Because 
nobody was going to try it and toe surfing wasn't cool. Once Kyle Lanny got into the, started promote, sure. posting his toe surfing, yeah. then it was cool again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank but, you, Kai. Yeah, I mean, Laird had done. <laughs> I mean, Laird, Laird made it cool for right. the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Laird yeah. the man. We'll, we'll get into that inflection yeah. point of yeah. you, you know, watching him do that for the very first time. But you on a flyer, you know, you and Nicole head out to, to Nazare. And that first season out there was really mostly just recon, like trying to understand what was happening, watching the waves, meeting with people at the, in the government and, you know, trying to build a team and make sense of how you could do this, you know, quote unquote, safely or as safely as possible. Yeah, we call that the exploration year where we were just exploring and, figuring out all the challenges that we might face, figure out solutions. And um, we were so like, it was, it never received that type of welcome anywhere in the world where the Portuguese Navy opens their door and opens all the charts. And and uh, I mean, everybody and anybody was at our, you know, ready to help with mm -hmm. whatever they, they, whatever information they had. Uh, we didn't have a lot of funding. I mean, there was a little restaurant, Celeste restaurant. She gave us meals for $7 was her contribution. Yeah. Uh, Luis Cerveto was a fish company. His, he's the biggest fish company in Nazareth. They gave $10,000, but other than that, we had nothing. And um, Lino from Nazareth Water Fund, he came in personally and just asked what we needed and whatever we needed, he made it happen. Mm. So yeah, and 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 that requires uh, you know a healthy dose of humility. Like you're this Hawaiian surfer guy, you have this understanding. Like, look, I'm not Portuguese. I can't just come in here and pretend like I know what's going on. I have to make sure that I have the support of the community before I even attempt to do something that's going to put this town in the spotlight. Was yeah. that part of the thinking or was it just, this is your natural tendency? Like I- Kind of natural I, tendency yeah. I assemble. We're, we have, I don't like to call it, um, I, my families around the world, like where we've assembled, assembled in Tahiti, in Chile, in Peru, you know, all over the world. We have our little family set up during my toe surfing career. So wherever I wanted to, wherever Big Swell was going, we would have something already in place. So we call, we're coming and boom, this, everything's ready. Right. But it was nothing like what happened in Portugal. You got the government, you got the town, you got, oh, actually the town at first did not want to know us. They were like, they're very passionate, you know, very loving. And I was the guy that was going to die tomorrow. So mm -hmm. they didn't want to get to know me because they didn't want to be sad after, when I died. Right, they had this long history <laughs> of all these fishermen dying, right? Yeah. As yeah. a result of this wave. And, and what's interesting is what makes that wave so big. So talk a little bit about like why that wave is so different and special. It's crazy because 10 miles down the road at Peniche, it'll be six feet. And in Nazareth, it's 60 feet. It's, uh, there's this underwater canyon that's 25 miles long, three, uh, three, two times, two or three times the size of the Grand Canyon, the depth two times the size of the Grand mm -hmm. Canyon. And it kind of bottlenecks. So it starts out really wide and then it gets really narrow right before the right before the, the last rock and the lighthouse. Right, it and runs it perpendicular to the shore. It actually passes the lighthouse and runs all the way to the beat there. So the, the energy keeps moving with all of its full raw power without getting disrupted by a, a reef or a, or a sandbank or a shelf in that canyon. But on the right side is this shelf 
which is um, it gets like 60 feet deep at the deepest. Mm -hmm. And over here, you got a thousand feet deep where the wave breaks. And then um, where the wave breaks on the shelf, it's like 30 to 40 feet. The biggest swells we've ever had might be breaking in the 60 feet deep. Um, but these, these swells are going slower, or these waves are going slower as they hit the shelf. And the same exact waves goes faster down the canyon. And then they, they miss each other when it gets to the, where they're gonna break, but then they, they turn sideways each other. and it creates a wedge, right. a, a crazy wedge. And there's this, when you, when you watch video kind of zoomed out a little bit, it just looks like a massive washing machine. Like we're sort of used to, when we think of big waves, we think of these you know, beautiful clean sets on the North shore of Oahu where they're perfect curls and they're coming in and it's all kind of very, you know, pristine and tropical. And this just looks like, you know, the gods are angry. Like it's just crashing, <laughs> you know, like how do you even make sense of like where to be and where the wave is gonna break. And it looks like there's another wave coming from the side, like making sense of all of that and trying to understand like, is this even possible to ride? Seems like a hef hefty equation to solve. I think that's what's most, uh, what we love the most about it, you, it's never the same twice. And it, there's always a challenge. There's all number one, picking the wave. Like sometimes you have the biggest foe you ever saw coming at you and you start driving for it. And that cross wave cancels it. And it doesn't even, it just kind of go and there's nothing. Mm. And other times it'll be a medium size. And when it hits the wedge perfect, bigger than like 10, 20 feet bigger than you expected. And um, yeah, it's, it's never the same ways twice. It's always challenging. It's it, the the biggest challenge of all is right in front of the cliffs or first peak left breaks. If you fall right there, there is the water is so foamy and so aerated, and the hold downs are so brutal. And right in there is like a river riptide just coming out full force. So you have this current pulling out and the wave coming in. And if you fall there, it's almost impossible to come up. When you finally do. The next wave is usually right there. Mm -hmm. There's no time to get you. And if the ski can get in there, if you grab the guy and you try to go in the aerated water, you don't move. So it's like somewhere you never want to fall. And we've had a few people fall there and, and they've had the worst experience or the most challenging experience they've ever had in the water. Yeah, what was, what was interesting was figuring out, like there's the, I want to talk about the mechanics of towing into these waves. But what the epiphany was really realizing that you needed an additional wave runner for rescuing the person in case they, they wipe out, right? Because when they're in that foamy no man's land, you can't even see where they are. And the guy who dropped you off, the towing guy can't get there, right? Like it's impossible. So the only way to make it semi-safe is to have two wave runners out there, one specifically for rescue. Yeah, and one of the biggest keys to success is your eye in the sky, your spotter on the cliff, mm -hmm. who is communicating with both drivers and right. even the surfer if you Nicole have an ear. Yeah, Nicole. Mm -hmm. Well, we started out to have her for safety, but then we're saying, which wave? And she's she's like, spotting the good waves. <laughs> right, so it, it is this huge team effort. Um, I underappreciated the skill level required for the tow-in wave runner pilot, like that's a whole thing. And you know, the docuseries does an amazing job of demonstrating like how trained up these people have to be and how in sync, like there has to be this, you know, connective tissue, almost a, you know, a, a synergy and unspoken 
connection between you and and uh, your towing pilot in order for that to work, right? And then you've got Nicole on the cliff and these other people, and you guys all have walkie talkies and you're communicating the whole time. You're wearing specialized uh, wetsuits that have inflation in them. So you're not gonna get caught in the washing machine underwater for too long. Like so, so many precautions and so many team members in order to make this thing operate. Yeah, the the inflation is the best invention in big wave surfing. What's even better is the flotation that we put into our suits. Mm -hmm. So as long as we have a little flotation in a suit, whether you pull or if it malfunctions or if it breaks, you're still gonna pop up sooner or later somewhere and, and we'll find you. Uh, but with the inflation, it's just like, yeah, you're coming up. You and look you're, like you're a ready Michelin man or like a Marvel character <laughs> in those things. <laughs> big time, big yeah. time. And um, yeah, the drivers, what you were asking earlier, I mean, we have the, the initial tower who usually is the guy who first responder, but then everything's running perfect. You have one guy on the, on the left and one guy on the right watching the person surf. Mm. So the driver usually gets you if he, but he can't see usually because he it's hard to get to the shoulder really fast to be able to look down. So you have the guy on the left and the guy on the right actually eyeballing, and you have the eye in the sky. So if one of them misses, then the next one comes. If they were gonna go left, but all of a sudden last minute went right, the guy on the right got. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's those are the definitely the our lifeline. Yeah, those those safety drivers. Yeah, 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 and it's it's cool. I mean, you're. Irish by descent, right? Yeah. And you got like, uh, you got, um, initially you have Al who's a Irishman, He's right? Legend. And then you got Cotty who's an Englishman. Like none <laughs> of these guys are Polynesian or Portuguese or anything like that. Like all Northern European guys, like you're like an unlikely, you know, set aside the age piece, which we're gonna get into, like you're an unlikely candidate for this whole world to begin with. An unlikely success story, yeah, <laughs> starting from so. Pittsfield, Massachusetts, yeah. 100 miles from the ocean. Um, yeah, the team, you know, I, if I could do it all over, I wouldn't change anything, but if I was gonna do it the way that would be set up for success, I would have brought Kelly Imamala, my Hawaiian mm -hmm. driver, because he doesn't miss ever, and right. he's—I I don't he even have to say anything. He comes in in like your your third or fourth year there, right? He's—I know he's in season two. I'm not sure if he made season one at all. Was he in season? I one? think he's in season one. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Because Cotty was back home for a spell, right? Because okay. he lost his. Oh sponsor. yeah, for 2012, he yeah. put me on that wave. Oh, and he <laughs> missed me, which yeah. he never does. It was uh -huh. like crazy. The Hawaiian miss. So he flew off the ski. Yeah. Right. But um. I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, Cotty is the most selfless, uh, my favorite person in the world. And then Al Manny is just the gentle giant. And the whole team, we, we were just, and it was easy, you know, cause they had a lot of, um, for lack of a word, they had a lot of respect. They were like, you know, kids mm -hmm. like, oh, what do you, so they, they actually did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, so I could really- Train them up. Yeah, mm -hmm. and really um, know that, my desires were gonna be met every time as long as they were learned and, and you know, train them up, right? Right. They so were gonna what, listen and train up how I'd like them to be. What And you're very specific in like what you want and what you need. Like what is the most important, you know, sort of skill set or, or capacity of the tow and pilot? Like, what are you looking for? Like, what do they need to have and be? 
they have to be very in tune with the ocean, very confident and very comfortable. And, um, you know, I've, I've had some drivers that I worked with for years and, and they will never get it. They're basically, they don't, they're not in tune with the ocean or I don't know what it is, but they'll never get it. And other guys will get it like right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. um, Cotty was already good and Al was already good. Uh, the first day when we towed, I caught this long wave and I'm not sure exactly how I ended up on the inside, but in the end, he picks me up and we're flying in. And it's like the first time that we're gonna try and come back out. Uh -huh. And phew, right there, I was like, it's on, you're right. good, we're ready. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're out there and I wanna work well, up you, to that. You're on the back of that sled and you don't know where you're going, but you can feel it. And uh -huh. he was flying in and then the biggest turn, and then I was like, yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of, of how Anderson Cooper describes you. You know, like Garrett, when he's talking about these waves, he's like, imagine you're, it's like you're, you're cruising down the side of a skyscraper, but the skyscraper is collapsing on top of you. you know, he's like, I've never he, met anyone like Garrett. Like it's so animated talking about these waves. He is the best, waves. yeah, he is the best. So let's, let's work our way up to that 70 foot, eight footer. Like that was, that was in the second year. So the first year you're out there, you spend the whole winter and it, it's really just getting everything set and you go back the second year. And was there a sense of possibility? Like, okay, now we're gonna execute. We have all these pieces in place. I have the support I need. I've got the guys who have my back. They know what they're doing. Like everything is firing on all cylinders and we're good to go. Yeah, we, I was super confident. Mm -hmm. I, I visualized it, we manifested it, we knew it was happening. My wife, Nicole, she's like, when she wants to manifest something, it happens the next day. Oh, so. we're, gonna, we're gonna get into the manifesting <laughs> piece. Um, yeah. And funny thing is my whole life I had been manifesting, but I didn't really know until I uh, watched The Secret, uh -huh. like, I don't know, maybe yeah, yeah. five years after it came out or something. And I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just, you're a you're a, a generator manifester, right? <laughs> In the human design. I'm actually a you're straight up generator. Generator. generator yeah, straight yeah, up yeah. generator. Yeah. A generator. Yeah. Of course you are, right? Yeah. So uh even though you had spent that entire first winter there, it wasn't like like was anybody like in the surf world like, oh Garrett's out there? Was that that was sort of dismissed, like, oh, who knows what he's doing out there? Actually, uh Kelly and I were communicating before I oh, went Slater. there. Yeah, uh -huh. and he uh, he would go there to hide from everybody. He panishes, you know, an hour, 45 minutes away where the contest is, and he would mm -hmm. go to Nazareth's lighthouse and just mm -hmm. hide, and, and he surfed a couple of little breaks and had fun, and but really just enjoyed the power and just sat there in awe. And um, I we talked about a month before I was going, and then- uh, Before two, you were going the first time? Yeah, mm -hmm. and then two weeks before I went, he was on the lighthouse and he's like, Garrett, it's, it's big, it's gnarly. <laughs> if, if one mistake, you might not be going home, please be really careful out mm -hmm. here. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, those are wise words, you know, from a guy who knows. Yeah. But you had other plans, <laughs> right? So you go out the second year and uh, this is where everything kind of lines up, right? And I gather that like, the swells are pretty frequent, right? You're not waiting, you're, you're not having to wait around 
too long before these big waves start rolling in. Like it's pretty on the regular. Yes, most frequent big wave spot in the world. Mm-hmm. Just the, the wind has to align. But nowadays the guys are going out no matter what it's like, even if it's all windy and choppy, they're out there just charging. Yeah. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. How long into that second season before you catch this 78-footer? It was November 11th, What? or November 1st. Um, Nicole, do you happen to remember when we actually were, I think we, it was pretty quick, wasn't it? Mm. When what? From the day we landed till the world record wave. Yeah, it was quick because we probably, the second we, uh, we there, so. It was the first, well, we called Audi and, uh, Cody and Al over and it was on, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, right. So you drop in on this huge wave, it gets documented. You already have like this documentary crew with you though. Like how it was, was the docu-series already locked in and in place or was this just kind of amateur footage that got cobbled together later once the documentary got City underway? Hall hired a still photographer to document what we're doing. Mm-hmm. He actually had a couple go, or I had GoPros. I had GoPros. Um, he had a camera that was HTV so you could actually film. Second I landed, we became friends and I said, please do not turn the video camera off. Right, so you just have all this footage. Yeah, and he did good, Yeah, he did really good. Yeah, it's incredible how much archival footage there is from those first two years when nobody was expecting anything to happen. Yeah, so you you ride this 78 footer, it's a story that quickly goes around the world, essentially essentially the, the biggest wave ever surfed in the history of surfing. My first question is, and I kind of already know the answer, but I think it would be instructive for for everybody listening or watching, is how do you determine the size of a wave? And I loved CJ's description in in the docuseries about the kind of less than scientific, sciencey approach to calculating all of this. It's literally impossible to actually get the height of a wave just because of the, 
I mean, if you got the Google Earth things now and you got these watches and you got everything measuring everything and it's still pretty much impossible because you got to be able to come out to the flat mm -hmm. and everybody's measuring about 20, 30 feet, feet up from the flat. And then you got the contour. Are you actually measuring the distance of that contour or are you measuring a straight line straight up? Mm -hmm. it's, it's super controversial, super... Um, the finding the top is very easy, but then in the rules, it's where the surfer is. So say it's 80 feet here, but the surfer's over here and it's 60 feet. And then it changes a lot. Sure. But it, it was where the surfer is on the wave under his feet there instead of the other 30 feet or 40 feet. Because right, the surfer's not necessarily at the bottom of the wave. Never. We're never yeah. actually at the bottom. And the, the wave could be getting larger as the ride goes on. Yeah. Right? And then you have to take that. So you, you estimate where the bottom is, you know where, the, where it's cresting at the top, and then you have to measure uh, the size of the surfer and the surfers generally in some kind of crouched position. They're not standing straight up. Yeah. So you can't say six feet or whatever. So you have to estimate that. And then you just do multiples of that to calculate it. Like it's, there's no way that you can get an accurate reading on this. And this is something that is completely ephemeral. Like it exists for a moment and then it's gone. And there's no way of going back in time to figure it out. And people's careers are, based around it. And they said that they measured my shin bone to get the size of the 78 foot wave. And I, nobody measured my shin bone. <laughs> <laughs> you remember, right? And then there's the political aspect Ooh. of it, right? Like yes. who's making these decisions and what are their motivations? Usually it's sponsors in control, but uh, once in a while there's no rhyme or reason. You're just like, but it maybe it's um, continent. They want to sell more in that country mm -hmm. or do more with surf in that country. Um, and then other times, I think it's right on the right on the money. The person who wins is supposed to win, but mostly it, it's con it's politics. Yeah. But Most the, is the politics. WSL manages that now, right? So they're yeah. they're independent on some level. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's good. They're they've grown women surfing beyond. I I'm, I love watching women surfing now. Mm. The, the level of the surfing. And at first I was like, what are they? They're just trying to grow up. Um, why? But they hats off. They mm -hmm. crushed it out of the park. And right. um, with this, the tour, they're doing great. Um, with the big waves, it's, it's always a battle with the surfers and their organization. And hopefully someday everybody will see eye to eye and it'll go where it should be today. Mm -hmm. For toe surfing should be like the NASCAR of, Mm -hmm. of, of surf, I mean, it, it right. could be huge. You get these teams organized, you get these garages, you get, yeah, it could be huge. And people could really be, um, they could be retiring. But right now, one or two actually get paid and the rest are just yeah. hanging on by a thread, working, working a day job and so they can surf. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I feel like that's changing though. You know, people like yourself and Laird and, you know, figuring out ways of making people interested in this, art form and sport is really, you know, creating a, a larger and larger audience for this. I mean, every everybody wants to see somebody surf a gigantic wave, right? As you know, right? So you you surf this 78 foot wave and the video and the photograph like quickly goes all around the world. And suddenly you being this, you know, relatively obscure later in life surfer is kind of foisted into the spotlight 
And there's a lot of you know commentary around the validity of this whole thing, right? I, it, it, my sense was that the traditional surfing community was somewhat dismissive, like, oh, it's a mushy wave, like that wave doesn't really count, like who knows what's going out in Nazare, like where you know there was there was a level of dismissiveness initially. Yeah, de- definitely. It, yeah, the whole mainly the surfing world. The rest of the world loved it. <laughs> sure. Well, we know. What do we know? Well, you know, CNN. It pops up on CNN, and you see this tiny speck, you like going down this insane wave that looks like you know a sea monster, right? And you're like, wow, that's unbelievable. But the main reason it was dismissed. Number one, they didn't know or understand. Um, never had been there. Number two. It, uh, toe surfing was dead, as I shared earlier. So nobody wanted to know anything about toe surfing in the surfing world. Is um, that true though? Because Mavericks was a thing by now, and you know, and they closed the jets. They closed no more jet skis. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, uh, they mm. turned it into a sanctuary. It still is today. I mean, um, a couple of guys go out when it's really big, and safety guys are allowed. But um, yeah, they've closed toe surfing huh. there. Um, but. It was challenging, yeah. To you know, I, I was calling all my friends. I was emailing everybody. I'm gonna come on over this wave, and and then all of a sudden, all this like oh, whatever. So my wife was like, "Once you cross over to CNN, be ready, because yeah. now you're in that world." Right? Uh, you, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, "I, I just want to surf. Mm-hmm. The goal is to keep surfing. So whatever uh, is a." Easiest way to keep surfing, and if we got the attention of the whole world, then the surfers will come. They'll they'll get it together, mm-hmm. and and everybody embraces it now, and everybody's just so supportive. And and we were at Malibu yesterday; it was a dream. All the boys, and we're taking all the kids out, and it just felt like home. It mm-hmm. felt it was so special. I, I was I've had a lot of good days in Malibu. I love Malibu, but yesterday was just so special. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And it is amazing because now everybody, you know, everybody in the world who knows anything about surfing knows Nazare, right? And there's all this energy and focus on uh, the winter season there and what's going to happen. And it really goes back to you. You're like, you're patient zero and you created like all of that out of your imagination and a simple email that drew you there initially. And this belief, you know, this idea that something that had not yet existed was possible. It's cool. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, man. So even after that happens, you go back for the third year and it's not like, oh, suddenly like hundreds of surfers are showing up. The only people that show up, and I can't remember whether that was the third or the fourth winter there was the, you know, a handful of these Brazilians. Yeah. They were the only ones who said, we need to go check this out. Yeah, there was uh, a few teams that showed up on their own and they were all hungry and they were, yeah, it was mm-hmm. it was interesting to watch. It was fun to actually see somebody else ride the wave. Yeah. To go on the cliff and actually watch for a minute. Yeah, but what was interesting to me about that was the fact that they came in and despite the fact that you had three seasons banked and all this experience, they didn't seem all that interested in tapping into that knowledge base. They were gonna go and figure it out on their own terms and they kind of got spanked. I mean, Maya almost died yeah, that was, uh, as a result that was, of that. And it was totally unnecessary. Um, 
Yeah, it was very surprising. I, I'm an open book. I love to share. I love everybody to succeed. I don't try and hide things to, you know, I go, I got the best board and I'm just going to not let anybody have access. I share everything and, and I was ready to share everything, but I didn't want to impose, mm -hmm. you know, when you impose, people don't listen anyway. And my, we were talking with Carlos and Maya and maybe a few other- We're talking about Maya Gabera yeah. who then went yeah. on to be the, you know, the world record setter for the serving the largest wave for a woman. She's super inspiring mm -hmm. herself, uh, her story and her, her achievements and her movie's coming out soon. But yeah, um, cool. my wife says, look, she, we, I was leaving and she, she grabbed me, she said, you gotta go back there and tell them that if they fall here, they don't go that way, they go that way. So I grabbed them and I told them, okay, if anybody falls, they go to the, they go south, they don't go, because you would think it would go north up the beach, but mm -hmm. you go south into the corner. And, uh, and I explained very clearly, but then when that accident happened, they did the opposite. They went- And they didn't have a rescue wave runner. That was the big thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the communication I think was down or something. Yeah, so Maya goes down hard. She basically not only almost died, like I, did she actually die for a moment? Like they yeah. had to resuscitate her. Um, it was bad, right? And then she has like a four year period of trying to rehabilitate herself before she comes back. Yeah, she's superhuman. That, mm -hmm. that girl is, um, she's excelling as, as good or better than all the guys out there these days. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, when, she, when she finally broke the record, which, what was that, 2020, I think, when yep. she was yep. like a 73 footer or something. Yep. Yep. Um, the New York Times article about that was written by Adam Skolnick, who's my co-host here. Oh, no show. way. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so we've talked yeah, you about Maya. Get, you we've talked about on you here. before. Get oh, I'd, lo I'd yeah, love to. I'd love yeah, to have her yeah, on yeah, here. She's yeah, good. she'd be fantastic, and she's very well spoken. Yeah, cool. Um, talk to me about the relationship with fear. I mean, this is the low hanging fruit question, right? Everybody wants to know, like, what is, you know, what is it about you that makes you uniquely suited to, you know, approach these giant waves and, you know, sort of from a perspective of enthusiasm rather than terror. Well, my trainer says my body type is perfect for big waves. I don't know about all that. <laughs> what, just because the, why? The length of the legs and the arms and the uh -huh. torso and, and yeah. But um, I had surfed the glacier waves in Alaska, the waves that are caused by calving glaciers. And after that day, the fear that I, the fear that I had when that glacier came down on that first wave and I let go of the rope and I'm riding this teeny little wave and looking at the glacier thinking, oh shit, it could fall again and then I'm dead, crushed. It was overwhelming. Um, and then when I went back, I was already, I'd already surfed so many waves, so many big waves all over the world and got in so many good pounding. My, my, the way I always approached it was all or nothing get to get the ultimate ride the ultimate feeling and so i would always put it go as deep as possible if i could mm -hmm. put it all on the line and with that approach you don't make 50 percent of your waves and i didn't mind because i felt like ready and I, I could handle it i could hold my breath long i was strong and um with that yeah so I had first of all endured so many heavy poundings and then I went into the glacier and got desensitized from fear. After the glacier, 
it was a funny standing joke whenever I kicked out of a wave in Tahiti where it's the most death defying. Mm -hmm. my, my boys would be in the channel, did you get the rush? And I'd be like, eh, not really, a little maybe, but not the real deal. Yeah. And uh, so after 2007, I, didn't, I wasn't afraid in the ocean anymore after the glacier. I literally was not afraid. I, I enjoyed all the situations I'd, I've got myself into after that. Yeah, the uh, like thoroughly enjoyed them. Just to just to paint the picture though a little bit more thoroughly, the footage of you in Alaska trying to surf these waves that are being created by the calving of these glaciers is absolutely harrowing. I mean, massive sheets of ice are just falling off the sheer cliffs of these gigantic glaciers, which are causing a tsunami that you're there to ride. Right? Yeah. And, it is literally, yeah, yes. and 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 you you have to position yourself close enough to the edge of the glacier in order to catch that wave, right? And if the if the ice falls directly down, like in a sheath, it's all good. But if it decides to tip backwards what? and flat and land the, flat the, like the a pancake, bookshelf is that what they call <laughs> it? Because it's the book. You're you're literally <laughs> getting crushed like an ant. Is that so the sense that that could be possible at any moment was <laughs> and that's one of the few times where you're like I'm out like that first day there you're like this yeah. is not okay. I always visualize a positive outcome and always work on being positive and seeing success. In that moment I visualize being smashed like a tomato is what I've uh -huh. and that was just yeah. And even brought me to my even knees. if you survive that and you're riding the wave there's gigantic pieces of ice everywhere, right? Like you, I mean, the, the prospect that you would collide with one of those is pretty high. And they're, they're literally sharp cement right. floating somehow. Yeah, it would be just like careening <laughs> into a brick wall. Yes. Yeah, I mean, like why? <laughs> like, it's really funny what yeah. friends will talk you into doing mm -hmm. and yeah, be careful what those friends talk you into. <laughs> right, really, you did end I don't up doing think, it that yeah. second day. You, yeah. you were out there yeah. doing it. I don't think things through too much. I just think if I feel if it's a good idea or not, and then I go. And then once I get into what I've decided to do, I'm like, uh-oh, mm, yeah. <laughs> still try to stay positive, so see the gut, positive. It's a gut read, it's a gut instinct. Yeah, thing. all gut, you yeah. know, um, us generators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, right? But, you know, this gets in you, you into trouble a little bit. Like when you, I think it was, two, was it 2016 when you had spent a number of seasons at Nazare, but you're like, I wanna go surf these other breaks and be part of this competition of surfing the biggest waves all over the world and kind of travel a little bit more. That lands you back at Mavericks. And the first wave out where you took this crazy spill and end up getting severely injured and sends you down like, you know, a, a number of years to kind of get well again. I couldn't help but think like, was there a little bit of ego and hubris? Like I've been surfing Nazare for a number of years now. Like what's the big deal with Mavericks? I can go out here and do it no problem. Like having a little bit too cavalier of an attitude and, and lacking a little bit of respect for mother nature. Uh, so I went out a couple of sessions before that one and oh, it was the most crowded day mm -hmm. ever. And I got every single wave I wanted. Everybody was uh, all not, grumpy. That's not in the series. I, no, didn't, I didn't get that part. It would have yeah. been nice, uh -huh. <laughs> but I just got every, people were blown or blew, blown away. Cause Nazareth, you don't know where it's gonna break. 
and I've been surfing that for five years. All of a sudden, I show up at Mavericks, peak, go, and I caught every wave. I was like in heaven. I was like, this is too easy. And uh, so then I'm like, okay, I want to be getting this contest. And so I went back every time. We, I went back two times, and then the third mm. time was that mm. January. Oh, okay. Just got back from Nazareth, had a sore neck, going there for the wrong reasons, not for fun and not, I mean, I was going for fun, but I was thinking about getting in that contest, getting invited. How do I get invited? I got to show a good showing. Yeah, they told you you couldn't do it unless you showed up at Mavericks a number of times. And, and I'd been put your, there. Put your reps yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. So uh, wrong reason going mm -hmm. there for a contest instead of going there just for fun. Right. And not, my neck was really sore that day. So I blew up my inflation vest a little bit so I could actually rest on it while I'm passing, uh -huh. <laughs> like a pillow. <laughs> and uh board was a little too flat in the tail. It should have had more rocker. It was I, I got these two waves that were 60 feet, the two previous swells. In and I and the Peter Mel wave. You know where the Peter Mel wave? You see that thing? It was no. the best wave ever ridden at Mavericks. I was searching for that for years. And for the two sessions before the wipeout, I got one of those. Paddled, started, and then it doubled up and I couldn't make it down. So I'm standing, but I get kicked out the back twice, mm -hmm. two different sessions. So I'm like, I'm getting a bigger board, a heavier board. I'm going back there. I'm getting that wave. That would have been a good story to tell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bam. Yeah. Smack me down. Yeah. A little, probably not as much. Um, well, I have all the respect, ultimate respect. I think the no fear was a little bit didn't make me as um, focused and cautious as maybe I could be. Yeah. More just like, whatever, mm -hmm. just go. If I eat it, no problem. I don't don't want to eat it, but take bring it on. Right. So you break your foot, you, break. you smash your shoulder, yeah. all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. That really benched you for a long time. Yeah, still yeah. today, I mean, that scar tissue. Oh, wow, so you can't straighten your left arm? I can, yeah. but with help. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it gets better every day. Uh huh. Yeah, we're gonna talk a little bit about the yoga and all that kind of awesome. stuff too. Um, before we kind of get into your, your backstory, uh, I do wanna talk about the 100 foot wave uh, phenomenon, right? Like I, I, I guess I'm probably one of those people who thought you surfed a hundred foot wave. I think there's a lot of people out there that just think of you as like, oh, that's the guy who surfed the hundred foot wave because that iconic famous photo, probably the most iconic big wave surfing photo ever taken was you dropping in on this wave that ultimately never really broke. And you kind of you know, kind of surf out of it on the yeah. left-hand side, yeah. but you were on it long enough for that snap that went around the world and the mainstream news outlets all reporting that you surfed a hundred foot wave. <laughs> that was, that be careful. Like, I was, I was kind out. of like the bane of your existence, but also like the, the <laughs> thing that, you know, drew a lot of attention to you. Yeah, it was uh, the most beautiful picture I think I've ever seen and such a special moment. We were I was so focused. I waited in the water for two, three hours for that wave. We we want is that's the big mama. That's the right that goes into the, it's the safest wave if it's over eighty. Under eighty, the bleed, the most dangerous wave, because it goes straight on the rocks. Mm. Over eighty goes into the channel, breaks on that sixty foot shelf. It was almost broke into 60 and then kind of came into the 40 and and just kind of fizzled off into the thousand foot channel. 
the, they didn't show is at the end of that wave, I kicked out and um, Kaylee came to get me and missed me and mm. flew off the ski as well. Then the second rescue came in, went by Kaylee. He's like, and it went by Kaylee and got me, but I'm paddling this little six foot twig that I can barely paddle with all this flotation and, and the rocks are right there and I'm right here and, and this white, the second wave was bigger. So the white water's coming at me and I push the board and I swim under and I'm in this flotation suit that is just too much flotation to swim under. Mm -hmm. And I almost, and I would have landed right on the rocks. There was a GoPro footage of that that wasn't shown either, would have been cool. But, mm. but uh, that ride that? was very special, but I was very, I was not happy at all when I kicked out of that wave. I was, it was, um, it was, yeah, I just didn't do what I wanted it to do. Right, it wasn't a full ride, right? And you even said like, please don't share those images. I didn't really ride this wave. It wasn't Nonetheless, a wave. they leak out, they go everywhere. This creates a huge media cycle around the whole thing. You're like, I didn't even ride. I never said it was a hundred foot wave. The, the, the most How did that become a thing? Most challenging part was Surfer Europe. The photographer, Tom Monet, sent it to Surfer Europe and Surfer Europe titles it, McNamara claims to have surfed under photos. Mm. Ah! Right. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, like, does it, did it measure out to be a hundred foot wave or no? It depends who's measuring. Right. <laughs> but uh, the top to the actual bottom with the curve, 100% guarantee hundred foot wave. But the from here to there, I don't know, probably like 60, 70. Mm. Mm hmm. So why didn't you fully ride it? Why did you decide to kick out? Uh, it just ended. The rocks were right oh, there. Because it wasn't, it, it wasn't didn't, breaking. It, just, it was see. one of those cross ones that don't actually right. break. The mm. one behind broke. Mm. Should have waited Should've for the second that wave. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow, man, it's crazy. Uh, I want to talk about your upbringing. It's so colorful and, and unique. I mean, you have this you know, truly original way in which you were reared. I mean, almost feral as a child. So talk a little bit, I mean, you were born in Massachusetts, but you really kind of grew up in Berkeley. Paint the picture of, you know, what a what a typical day was like for you and your brother. Well, we when we showed up in Berkeley, People's Park riot has just finished and, you know, there's a lot of tension in the air, but it was just kind of subsiding and, I was just one and a half, so I didn't really know much except, uh, you know, there was like 20 people living in this three bedroom house and my parents would go leave anytime they wanted and I'd be home with some babysitter who was not really a babysitter, just one of the hippies who was hanging out. Mm -hmm. And um, So this was uh, the commune house that your mom started. In Berkeley, it was the gathering to get the commune people right, to go. Right, because the commune was in Sonoma, Berkeley. right? Berkeley, yeah. I mean, I mean Casadero, yeah, Sonoma right. County, yeah. So your mom like inherited some money. Yep. And that was the goal, like I'm gonna build a community, a hippie community. Exactly, yeah. and she did really well. I mean, we had some professors and, and there was people studying us and there was a, a really good group of people. Um, they were very free spirited, you know, everybody's running around naked, um, taking whatever drugs they felt like taking that day and doing whatever they felt like doing on that day. And um, it was super, um, I, I really enjoyed those, those times. Um, it was just, we were free. 
I, my wife always says, you're, you were basically free from, from one, one and a half. One and a half, they found me a mile down the road, Stoppers Boarding School, upstate New York. They found me a mile down a dirt road, getting ready to enter the highway in my diaper. And uh, the cops pulled over, grabbed me. Yeah. And they call the house and they're like, oh, you guys missing a girl? And my mom, like, mm, girl, no. And if she looked, oh, that's my, check the diaper. Oh, yeah, it was a boy. How's my gear? Bring him home. I'd broke, I'd just disappeared. But she, you know, she was always busy and didn't really, I mean, we let her watch our kids once in a while. And if we, we'll watch from the window and she'll be going that way. And the kids will be going, oh. Yeah, there's, a, there's another word for that that's less kind. You know, I mean, it's crazy that, you know, in today, child services would have been called and that might've been that between yeah. you and your mom. I mean, yeah. it's pretty neglectful situation. And, and all, I don't think she, was way, she wasn't neglectful. She was yeah. just very self-absorbed. Right. There's another word for that too. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, my sense is that your mom, whether it's narcissism or neglect or just being consumed with her own quest to, you know, find meaning in her life or find God or whatever it is, uh, you and your brother just didn't, you know, really find your way onto her priority list in a, in a healthy way. And every time you, kind of characterize your childhood because I've listened to a number of interviews with you. You're always painting it in in bright colorful language. Like it was fun and we got to do what we wanted and you know it was I have joyous memories of all of that. Um, but Nicole's like, yeah, that's you know <laughs> there's another version of that story. Like to me, like this is this is this is a traumatic experience that it seems like you found a way to compartmentalize or to process in your own way. And maybe that comes out in, in your surfing and in your you know, quest for adventure in these various ways. But I would imagine it was very difficult with all the you know, adventures that you went on with your parents. Yeah, the, the, the 100 foot wave shows a bit and it's interesting, it's my favorite. Number three is my favorite with mm -hmm. all that craziness, but it's nothing compared to what we went through. There was it barely scratched the surface, and then the book, the mm -hmm. Hound of the Hound Sea, of the sea. it shares a little, mm -hmm. but it's nothing. It scratched the surface. So when the feature film comes out, oh, it's going to be. Uh... <laughs> oh, there's going to. Is there a feature coming? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a man. I'm a. Yeah. I'm a. You know. I'm a gener generator. Man, Genera yeah. So I can't go and add. But if somebody comes to me and wants to do a feature film, I'll definitely entertain it. Uh -huh. But they don't understand what's what's the stories and the craziness and just, uh, I mean, it would be kind of, if we did it right, it would be like R to the max and just whacked out and right. people would blow their mind. So so what <laughs> what is it about it that, that hasn't been told? I mean, you're so there's this community in Berkeley, ultimately there's this commune in Sonoma. Um, at some point, this isn't doing it for your mom and she wants to go to Mexico, your dad wants to stay. You go with your mom, your brother gets left behind. You end up on all these crazy adventures down. You get left. Did you get like, you got left with a family and- A Mexican family, and, and yeah. A Mexican family. Pepe, Don Pepe and the family. Because your mom was off on her own. Going to pick up money. I, th or, I think she was going to get money or she, I don't know what she was doing. She was always, always trying to figure out how to pick up money from the 
inheritance at some bank or somewhere or, and then always doing something. Um, yeah, there was a lot of times when we got left with different people. Mm-hmm. But that was by your recollection, like a stable, healthy environment when you got left with that family. That right? was, it was, it was like a really good there experience. There animals yeah. and you could have stayed there. I loved it. They were just beautiful Mexican family that had a ranch and Mm-hmm. So I guess she felt really safe. She, you know, I have to give my mom a lot of credit. She moved us to Hawaii. She gave us our free spirit. She, um, she loved us. She would play music, sing us, sing, put us up. I mean, she was a, she was good overall. Um, it was very unconventional, but yeah, she was loving and she was a, you know, just you know, my wife now is a polar opposite. She is one hundred percent present all the time, and uh, so I got you know, I think. That's mm-hmm. what really attracted me to her is that I was always looking for my mama. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could have very well ended up marrying a version of your mom. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. They okay. seek out that same kind of relationship again and the pattern repeats itself. So it feels like you course corrected here and found the healthy, the healthiest type of relationship that you could to kind of mend that and you know sort of arrest the the repetition of that unhealthy cycle. I just had the the podcast that just went up this week is with this guy Dr. Gabor Mate. I don't know if you've heard of him or followed any of his work, but he, it does sound familiar. He's a he 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 became prominent for his work around addiction and recovery and this thesis that he has that most addicts or addictions can be traced back to unresolved or unhealed childhood trauma. And he's sort of more currently extrapolated on that thesis to say that so much of what ails us, whether it's physical or mental can be traced back to unhealed trauma. And that discussion around trauma and how it manifests in our lives and later in life in terms of like behaviors that we perpetuate or relationships that we get involved in, I think is 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 really profound. And one of the things that he helped me reckon with is this idea of separating, like when you look at how you were parented, right? Like I love my mom and my dad or whatever, and I don't wanna say anything bad about them, but he was able to help me understand like, you're not vilifying them. Like they did the best that they could. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, but that also doesn't mean that you didn't incur trauma because of decisions that they made about how they parented you. And I feel like you're protecting your mom and maybe there's an opportunity, a growth opportunity for you to really get into some of what transpired when you were younger in a way that you can make peace with it that would make you feel more whole. Funny, I. I always, um, you know, work on being positive, and but there was definitely things I held on to, and I did a three point three gram mushroom medicine. Right. I did four days in the mountains doing the medicine wheel. Uh, it's a book where you go through and work on all these different things that apply to mostly your past, and then um, you go to do the. You, the met the the mushroom the medicine isn't ne- isn't required or necessary if you do the book you can do it in your living room better to go to the mountains and away from everybody that's what I did but uh then I did a 3.3 gram journey I let go of everything said thank you to it all it's like yeah I'm I'm mm-hmm. so feel so yeah. light and so good and I and none of it is holding me back or taking me down or weighing on me it's all I've I've 
have had a nice uh, conversation. Thank you. Not serving me anymore. Love you. That's great. Good for you, man. Did you do that under supervision or just read this book and decided to do a DIY trip? Uh, a good friend of mine, Eric Nice, he uh, shared the book with me and then he flew over and guided the the journey. Right, wow. How long ago was that? Three months ago, what, three or four oh, months? Oh, it was recent. Yeah. Wow, wow. Um, but that was a breakthrough for you. Oh, visiting all these things that are just stuck, yeah. letting them go, loving them. Choosing mm -hmm. to love them all was the key. Mm -hmm. Choosing to love all those situations, all those challenging moments, all those life experiences that you might categorize as eh, like, ah, I love you, thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you got me where I am right. today, I love you, thank you. I wouldn't be right here now, That's I love true. you, thank all you. All these experiences <laughs> cohere to create, you know, this, this incredible hero's journey that you've been on. You end up in Hawaii. At some point, Liam comes, but your brother is back in the picture, right? Like you and your mom and your brother all go together yep. to the North Shore. Yep. Cause she hooked up with some other dude or there's a stepdad involved or what was happening? A musician, a black musician, his name was Daryl. And we tried to go to Florida like two or three times. First one, we jump in the car, you place an ad and somebody, okay, yeah, come drive with me. Some whack job, like, weirdo we jump out quick like a couple miles down the road i think this happened twice uh -huh. going to florida and then oh, we're going to hawaii there are all of our friends throw this big party for us oh sorry we can't go finally daryl actually gets us to hawaii through daryl we got to hawaii mm -hmm. and uh we end up on the north shore and probably the I mean, we're in Hawaii on the North Shore, but we're in the least desired spot called Cement City. Right. So it's kind of uh, like affordable housing project type apartment buildings. Yes. Yeah. And we were, you know, Daryl was a musician and he actually worked with Don Ho's uh, daughter and he was, he, ha he was good. And then he left as soon as we got there. He oh, he my split. mom. So then we we're on welfare and government assistance and this, and my mom was just depressed. And, and you're like, what? 12, 11, 11. 11. Mm -hmm. I went to first year of elementary, was uh, the, one of the, the only white boy in the class and all Filipinos and Hawaiians. Uh -huh. and, um, and, and you basically didn't really go to school though, right? Like you'd go in the front door and out the back door? That was during elementary uh -huh. in, in California. Oh, wow. So I never sorry. went to school. <laughs> we would go to UC Berkeley every day and hang out uh -huh. on the campus <laughs> from five to, well, no, from like, we you know, like six or seven to 11, uh -huh. we never went to school. We would literally go climb the fire escape of these buildings and go and pull all the marijuana plants and go home and roll fat joints. We're freaking 10 years old. So you're We're rolling fat joints at 10. At 10. Oh my God. Yeah. We ate peyote up there and the, the, I ate peyote was about five. Was that because your dad was running a vegetarian restaurant and he was serving it at the restaurant? Is that true? He wasn't serving pot. He, but he had a omelet. It was Ma Goodness Cafe on Shattuck and Ashby. Uh huh. Oh, and, right in the thick of it. Yeah, and we were on Emerson, the two block street. Mm. It was right back from Shattuck, one block back from Shattuck and Ashby. Uh huh. Holy Foods was on the corner. I don't know if it turned into Whole Foods, but it was Holy Foods. <laughs> uh, yeah. So 
Yeah, we were wild and we were free and we did whatever we wanted. We would stay out till 12 to whatever, from seven to 11, we were free. There was a, the serial killer was on, like mm -hmm. killing right in our, down, and we were out there until- that was, the, was that Zodiac era? I think so. I don't know which one it was, but we were out when he was out uh -huh. and we weren't supposed to be. <laughs> It's total insanity. It reminds me of a. Uh, I now imagine the the put that into a yeah. I mean yeah. It's like, uh, have you read Flea's book, Acid for the Children? I was just looking at that. Yeah, I have it right over there. You should read that book. I mean, okay. it's pretty similar. I mean, he was a feral kid, and he had you know kind of a chaotic you know family situation, but he was just running wild on the streets of L.A. at a very young age. You know, it's it's a it's a version of your story in, in some in some Yeah, way. we skimmed the surface on I mean, you paint those pictures of killers over there on the left and you're over here on the right shooting off rockets that you stole the day that day. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you're in Hawaii elementary school. So at some point a surfboard gets introduced to you. I mean, you're on the North Shore. It's almost inevitable that you're gonna end up in the waves. We were super lucky. Normally a Howley who enters a school, you're gonna get beat and mm. it's not gonna be fun. I got super lucky. First day of school, I had a fight with this one guy and got him good. And then the naughtiest guy in the school came and we were best friends and we made a gang. We had our leather jackets. I, we, we, yeah, it was funny. And then the principal calls in the office and says, oh, no gangs in my school, takes our leather jackets. But uh, sorry, the question, where were we going? Surfboard. Surfboard. Surfing. Mom goes to a garage sale and buys a board for 15 bucks and brings it home. And uh, that was our board. It was like 12 feet long, about 50, 60 pounds. And think in the book, it says we found it in the bushes. Yeah, there's a lot of different... Mm -hmm. My brother said that my brother remembers everything. Mm. My brother Liam and mm -hmm. and it was like a love at first sight type of deal. Or what? How did the you know relationship with surfing kind of flourish from there? Well, the first encounter was with our best friend Butchie Boy, and his dad had a bunch of kneeboards. These beautiful artwork on these kneeboards on the wall. And then it was his birthday, and he said, "Oh, come, we'll go surfing." My dad's kneeboards, and we went out. We weren't about to stay on our knees, so we went straight to our feet fell in love. That was mm. it. Nothing mattered on the land. Whatever's going on, on the land disappeared. You're in the water, you got shorts, warm water, surfboard. You're just in heaven. It was right. just too good. It would consumed us and became our passion, became our love, became my everything. It was a bit, took Liam a few more years. He was, he loved baseball and he was already being scouted by the UH was scouting him. And Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that initially he's the surf star. Oh, for 10 years, yeah, he, he made- he was the guy, like he was a big deal. Big, he made as much or more money than every, anybody for about 10 years. In a, uh, and he made money for at least a whole of 20, maybe 25 years, mm. good money. Right, he's your younger brother. Yeah. Yeah, and so he's getting all these accolades. He's on the cover of all the magazines. He's taking home prize money, um, but ultimately, like he he becomes a victim of his own character defects, right? Like he's a hothead and ultimately ends up like making a lot of enemies. At least that's the way the narrative is spun in the docuseries. He was, uh, he didn't back down. He ruled Rocky Point and 
did his best to rule pipeline, did his best to rule both those spots. Those two spots were the most photographed spots in the world. He got more waves than anybody guaranteed for 10 years. Mm. So he had a really good career just based on pipe and Rockies. We loved going to Japan. We go to Australia. I would kind of be in his shadow, get to go along once in a while and try and surf in the contest. I never did any good. Mm -hmm. He would always kind of, he would do, you know, he was a fierce competitor. He was gonna beat you. You have to get three waves in 20 minutes. He's gonna pal around you and take that, the best three waves of the heat if possible. Right, he's And not he's not gonna, gonna let you get any waves. Yeah, he, forget the etiquette and the decorum. But there was none when it came to those heats. All the boys, all the surfers, it was dog eat dog and you're not friends once you get in that heat. Nowadays, it's a little different. They're a little more friendly until the end. Oh, the priority. It's just there's real rules now with the priority. So, but uh, back then it was, yeah, if you're Hawaiian or you're from Hawaii, you had an edge because all the surfers around the world want to go to Hawaii. And if you're a badass and you, have, you hung with the boys, you're one of the boys, when they come to Hawaii, they're going to get sent home if they mess with you anywhere else. Right. So even in these heats in Japan, <laughs> and he's being rewarded for that behavior. Until right? the, he's the bad yeah, boy of surfing. Yeah. Until yeah. the magazines blackballed him and the judges started giving him 0.5 less always. He, if he was going to win a heat, he had to really win it. Like there was a Pipe Masters that he, I think he won. I, I'd like to watch the tapes again, but. They scored Kelly Slater a 0.5 higher on each wave and scored him a 0.5 lower on each mm -hmm. wave. And um, yeah. yeah. And ultimately at some point you start catching up to him. So what was going on? How, how were you able to no longer be the older brother in the wake of his younger brother and surpass him? It's funny because I'm still, I'm really no longer in the wake, but once in a while, I'll meet somebody who knows Liam or knows of Liam and didn't know me. And they're like, whoa, you guys are totally opposite. <laughs> but uh, toe surfing, I started toe surfing to get away from all the crowds. There's so many crowds and Laird and Buzzy and Derek show up with their jet Zodiac and mm -hmm. I saw, and so I ran home, I got my board. I'm sitting at sunset with my 10 foot board and I'm about to paddle out there to ask them to tow me into one. This and this is, was the first, very, like their very first experiment with this, Buzzy Kerbox and yeah, that original OG tow-in yeah. crew. And I sat on the beach with my jaw, you know the old cartoon characters where the jaw drops to the ground and didn't that move. A, that was an Me and Johnny point. Boy Gomes and we're just watching. And then I, from then on, I was obsessed. I bought a Zodiac, painted a giant shark mouth on it, tried to do it my Zodiac. It was, uh, and then my friends got a Sea-Doo jet boat. Charlie Walker and Dawson Jones got this uh, pontoon zo uh, jet ski with a pontoon basically. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in and that was it. That was it. So yeah. it went from, I'm never gonna be a big wave surfer. That wasn't cool to, it's all about big waves now. Well, no, I, I actually was from, Till 16, I was scared to death of big waves. I was not gonna surf a wave over 10 feet, 10 feet face. And then after 16, I, I fell in love with big waves. A friend made me go out and when I did not want to and gave me the right board, gave me the right advice. And I got every wave I wanted. So I lived for big waves from that day forward. But it was a, my career was based around Japanese sponsors pretty much, a couple of USA sponsors. And then, uh, 
I loved big waves, but there wasn't much there for a big wave surfer, you know? There wasn't really these soul surfers or free surfers, mm -hmm. what I like to call a soul surfer. And I made a little money, like 500 a month, maybe 1500 at the most for all these years. I had to rent rooms to pay for the, pay the bills and in my house. And then um, toe surfing was to get away from everybody. And all of a sudden it became this cool sport that actually everybody was interested in. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, all of us have had an experience in the water, a, a traumatic experience in the water, whether it's a bathtub, a lake, a river, an ocean. Sometime throughout our life, most all humans have had a traumatic, we have utmost respect for waves and then big waves, like how? And so they're just captivated and interested. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden this, I was a lot in of the- energy around this thing. Yeah. You had been into just for the pure joy of it, not because like, oh, there's a way to be pro and a way to support myself doing this. So you become the guy who's working to live, right? Like it's just, I gotta make enough money so that I can go surf the waves I wanna surf. The money was more for the family. When I yeah, got so the job, got, when I got the store, it was just kind of like, got kids. it was just to stay home and take care of the kids uh -huh. and hopefully take them all on a trip. Right, so you open up this store on the North Shore. Was it a surf shop? What kind of yeah, store it was, was called it? Epic Sports, and it was a surf shop. But it was a, there was a little bit of MMA stuff in there. That Bad Boy was my partner and sponsor. Uh -huh. And that and that's between how old are you during this period? I was thirty five. Yeah, I think about thirty five is when I actually. Oh wait, it was thirty five was when I closed the store. It was um, thirty to thirty two to thirty. Five. Right, so for three years, okay, you know, I'm not gonna go work in a cubicle. I'm gonna be a little bit of a small business entrepreneur. At least I can control some aspect of my destiny. Oh, I was right? creating an epic empire. It yeah. was not gonna be small. Oh, really? It okay. be huge worldwide. Right, so this was, this was <laughs> franchises of this store all over the world, yes. surfing meets MMA. Yeah, okay. epic sports. <laughs> all right. Um, but, you know, quickly you become a bit of a working stiff, right? Who's like driving by the waves on the way to work and, and you know, kind of living this life of of quiet resignation. Yeah, I gave up on my passion, opened that store and quiet was the word. And you're doing what you need to do to support your family, yeah. and pay the bills and you know, be responsible adult. You, that's what I thought, but it definitely brought me to become somewhat depressed. And just because I would drive by these perfect waves every day going to work and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to work and I'm going to wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a lot of myself in this story. I mean, the facts of my, you know, narrative are quite different, but you know, I had my version of that like at at 40, this existential kind of crisis about what I was doing, how I was spending my time, the choices that I had made about how to make a living and just being deeply unhappy with all of that, but also feeling very confused about how to resolve that, right? So walk me you know, in your version of, of this story, like what was the tipping point or what, you know, what, what occurred to lead you to this place of saying, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Like there's something else, something bigger, something better out there for me. If you don't mind, I'd like to know your tipping point. Uh, well, I gotta, I'll give you this book, but <laughs> I had, I mean, <laughs> mine was, you know, mine came in the form of a little bit of a health scare that coincided with this, you know, kind of low grade, 
depression about, you know, where I was in my life. And that created a little bit of a perfect storm. And my resolution began with just changing my relationship to myself first through food and then through movement. And that very slowly kind of led me in a new direction. So it was a, it wasn't like a, like a lightning bolt kind of thing where everything changed quickly. It was a very gradual shift. Well, interesting. I'm going to get that book. Yeah. I got, I got if you sign it for, it for me, I'll yeah, really. I'll, I'll definitely <laughs> do that. This is about you, bro. <laughs> okay. So uh, going, driving to the store, perfect waves, got to go work. That was where it was like, uh, and and I started drinking coffee at 35 mm -hmm. or 33. When I opened the store, the first time I started drinking coffee. And Meaning like for the first time in your life, you needed something external exogenous to excite you or give yep. you energy. Yep. Whereas prior to that, you never needed that. Nope. And so uh, we get to the store and I remembered, okay, I wrote a business plan for this store. I got that business plan for dummies book and, uh -huh. and made a business plan for the store. And I'm like, oh, let's see if we can do that to keep surfing. So I put on the keep surfing, the goals, win the eddy, win the jaws. How do I do that? I eat very, you know, the eating program, the training program, the manifesting, visualizing, and um, did that for from that day since I wrote that plan and uh, focused, put so much time and energy. I put it on the refrigerator. I put it in the car. I put it in the bathroom mirror. I uh, the, the the map, mm -hmm. the blueprint to achieve these goals. And so there was clarity though. You knew, okay, I got to get back to surfing. How am I going to do that? I've got a family. I've got bills. Well, Jaws, uh, Eddie, those are contests with prize money, right? So the quickest way to put money in the bank account is to win one of those. How am I gonna win one of those in the short term? And then long-term, it becomes about sponsors and all of that, right? So is that what the business plan looked like? Like I'm interested in like, what were the line items you know, in the business plan and how did those translate into sticky notes with specific goals or, or mantras that were gonna lead you in that direction? It was the uh, the winning was everything, because with that would come the sponsors and the partners. Mm -hmm. And did you have a history of winning competitions where you knew that that was a feasible possibility, or was that more like a pipe dream to win a big contest? I've like been that? surfing Waimea more than anybody up to the store. I'd been towing. I. I was real confident that I was gonna win. I knew that Eddie, I was winning. There was no doubt in my mind. And the Jaws, I thought I could win that as well until I went there after writing my goals. I went there for the first time, they called the contest on and it was windy and small. So they canceled it, but we went out and towed it for the first time and it was terrifying. So powerful, so, mm. and I was like, oh, Jaws yeah, I'm winning, I'm winning the Eddie. I just want to come home in Maui at the, the Jaws. I just want to come home. Right, so, so for people that don't know, Jaws is the huge wave on Maui. It's the one that Laird kind of made famous. And, totally, and this was Laird at, and Derek and this and was Buzzy. at the time when there, there was, it was all about Jaws, right? Because Laird was there and that was, that was the Nazare of that moment. Yes. Yeah, and Eddie is North Shore Oahu. So that's your backyard. That's literally my, I can yeah. see it from my front. Right, yard. so it would make sense. Uh, well, Eddie is is probably the better opportunity for you because you know it so well. 
contest day arrives. They call both of them on same day. They don't have, we don't have the computers uh, looking at the buoys. You have to call every hour to see where the buoys are at because that's how you know how, how big the waves are going to be. And I'm literally calling every hour, checking the buoys, checking the buoys all the way. I sleep a little bit, call, sleep a little, call, sleep. 4 a.m., I was still undecided. I have my partner, Rodrigo Zende, my teammate on Maui waiting, and I was in the eddy. The previous year, I'm the only surfer in history that I was number nine alternate, and uh, number nine didn't come, and I'm paddling out. Elijah Young didn't show. This is it, eddy. I'm paddling out in the eddy. I get out there. Elijah makes it, paddles out. Garrett, you got to paddle in. Meaning you're out, you can't compete. Right. Devastated beyond, right. but okay. But the universe has another plan for you, Garrett. <laughs> right? So I'm still, now I'm seventh alternate, not ninth. And um, yeah, I just couldn't see myself sitting on that beach, not knowing if I could surf or not. And the main thing is I had my teammate waiting for me. So at 4 a.m., I rushed to the airport, got on the plane and went Shot to- Shot over to Maui, yeah. right? And said, let's drop in here. What was the difference in prize money between Eddie and Jaws? Well, Eddie was, I don't know, like 20 grand or something like that. Uh -huh. Oh, maybe 50, it was, it was, Eddie was could have been kind of high back then, but Eddie was kind of the more most prestigious. Eddie it's yeah, that's his last name, right? Eddie, so in honor of this legendary surfer, and that was like the prestigious one to win. Eddie Icow Invitational, the one we all big wave surfers dream to be in. It's like the pinnacle. Uh -huh. And uh, but that the Jaws was the first shut. of its Jaws was the first of its kind. But they had seventy thousand dollars prize money, more so. prize money, but. You're less experienced on this wave. You had never surfed this wave before. And my partner, get this, he sh never towed before. So he shows up on Oahu. This is not looking good. <laughs> he Garrett. shows up on Oahu and I tell him, okay, let's go practice. So I take him over to this little wave. It's called um, Police Beach. And it's this little teeny wave that's about this tall, maybe a little bigger, but it breaks just like Jaws, a, a nice right to go in the channel, left it's kind of gnarly. And uh, I tell him, just put me on that right. And it's this big. And uh -huh. he puts me exactly on the way, perfect. And I'm like, oh, we got this, don't worry. We're He's fine. like, what the fuck are you talking about? We got, I'm like, we got it, we got it, don't worry. Cause I, I mean, I had my plan. I knew how to win and I knew what to do. And I shared with him and we focused and we didn't train that much. And But I knew that he just had to put me on the wave. The rescue guys will pick me up. Mm -hmm. So he would put me on the wave, the rescue guys would get me. And he was like a shark. He was a badass. Like he was so in tune. You know how you I was sharing some people will never learn and other people learn quick. I was a slow learner. It took me a while to get good. This guy was good instantly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he surfed better than every, he was more focused than any big wave surfer at that time for paddling. So you go to Jaws and you feel confident, but it wasn't like there was an expectation that you were going to win this competition, right? Who were the who were the people that were expected to oh, win? Oh, they were all there. Parsons and Gerlach and all the Maui boys. I mean, yeah, it was that was a really good, solid showing. Uh huh. But yeah, felt... they definitely none of them were probably <laughs> thinking about me and Rodrigo are going <laughs> to win. Right, and you're how old? Thirty. Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Right. So not exactly in the prime of your 
physical career as a professional athlete. Okay, what are you talking about? I know, we're gonna get to that part. Like, I'm, it's all love, Garrett. Listen, listen. you know, I didn't I didn't start getting into my athletic stuff until my 40s, so. Oh, wow. Um, all right, so long story short, you end up winning this competition. Like, when you think back on that, I mean, two questions. First, what was it that you did that allowed you to win? Like, what was the secret sauce in that victory? And then perhaps more importantly, like what do you what do you make of that in retrospect, looking back, you know, at the arc of your story and kind of everything that's transpired as a result? Because that this is another huge inflection point that sets up the ability for you to have a life as a surfer and go on to do all these other things. First of all, we had a magic seven two brewer, and from Laird, that's a surfboard, right? yeah, from Laird and them, you know, like uh-huh. working with Dick. They made what was the best at that time, and I was lucky enough to tap into it's like that specific for Jaws. Yes, mm-hmm. but didn't everybody have that board or no? They all had versions, their own version. But seven two, that was long. We're on six O's now. It was still dinosaur, right. and everybody had dinosaurs, but they all had the similar dinosaurs uh, compared to what we're on now. But so um, I sat them down. I said, "Look, we're." You, he went first for, I think it was like 45 minutes, 30, 30, 30, 45 minutes. And then I, we had half, half of the heat was me, half of the heat was him. I put, I said, look, we're making, you make three waves, no matter what, I'm putting you in a safe enough spot so you can make the waves. I, I was a really good driver already. So I put him in a safe zone so he could make the waves. He made his three. After you make three waves, you can then we'll get barreled. That was mm-hmm. the goal. Then pull in. But until you make three waves, don't even think about pulling in. So he made his three waves. Fourth wave, he pulled in. It got he it kind of clamped on the top, and he got. And I went in to pick him up, and uh, he jumps on the sled, and this wave is coming, and it's all foamy, and the ski's not going, woo, 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 like stuck in mud. Mm-hmm. And this massive wave is coming. And then the selfless guy that he is, he look, he, and he was already beat from that first one. He was tired. He pushes the sled as the wave catches us. And then the ski goes up 10, 50, maybe 20 feet high. I'm, I'm up there and I'm just like, this is done. There's no way you can come out of this. But I, I got my feet in these foot straps. I got my hand on helmets. My number one first sponsor ever, it was his jet ski by chance. He let us use it. And I'm about to bail, but I just kept holding. And it flew me out in front, landed, pop. <laughs> I mean, that was the hand of God. If there ever was a hand of God, that was it. Uh-huh. <laughs> So basically what you're saying is he put you by hook or by crook and in the most unlikely situation, you ended up exactly where you needed to be to get this wave and have this ride of your life. Well, him, he got he, the wave. He got the, he got the ride. So, the way it so works he got the is, three good waves and so, made them. So the way it works is you alternate surfing yeah. and towing with your partner, yes. right? So it's a two man gig Yes. and you're getting scored as you know, how you kind of do collectively as a team. So those three waves each. Right, and then the purse you split. Purses, yeah. or it depends on what you what agree you on, agree you know. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't ask you whatever that was. It was split, it was split, it was split. And ultimately you end up becoming victorious in this, in this event, 
uh, in an unlikely way. I'm sure people were surprised, like this 35-year-old guy who had seemingly retired suddenly is back. What did the surfing world make of that at the time? Uh, not much. No. They swept it under the rug. And they kind of made it like Parsons Girl like Liam's one. brother had kind of a thing, but like we don't need to pay too much attention to that. Well, plus I'm Liam's brother. Yeah. <laughs> but Parsons got the best wave of the contest, this crazy wave, and made it. And uh they just really pumped that up in all the surf media. In Brazil, it was a big thing. Just Brazil. Me and Rodrigo won. Studio Omega's the sponsor, Global TV, the biggest network. It's going on prime time. So we, I was huge in Brazil. The rest of the surfing world still didn't really know much. And the sponsors didn't start flying in. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, okay, well, now I'm going to Tahiti and I'm gonna go get something big there. And right, we went and up. I got a cover on Surfer. And then I won the contest. They, you know, they knew of the word, oh, but nobody, oh, well, who is this? Then I go to Tahiti, get this freaking incredible wave that graces the cover of the all kinds of that magazines all over the world. And then I'm going, okay. So I was watching the boys at Jaws and I'm just like, what the hell are they doing? On Why aren't they in the barrel? And then I went there that first time. I was like, oh, now I know why they're not in the barrel. This wave is, it's Jaws. It's trying to eat you and it's not nothing to play around with. And now I know why, but I, I, I understood why, but I still wanted to go get barreled there. So I went that next winter, 2003, got the barrel. So now I get so you're the, the first guy to get barreled at Jaws. I don't know about the first guy barrel, but I got a, a, a really good one. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got the win, then I got Tahiti, then I got the barrel. The funny right. thing about the barrel is they put on the, the cover, it's me, but it says Laird and Company. So I get, it's like, so I, I could only imagine people going, Laird, how's that barrel? And he's going, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, but, yeah. It, so it, was, <laughs> it was a trip. Right. Yeah, so then, um, but the sponsors started coming. I got on, a, I was working with Red Bull a little bit since I had the store. Mm-hmm. And they were coming all in, and then uh, then I had a manager came in right then, made me a website, and then um, we got. I was with Excel. The manager screwed that deal. Um, yeah, things were. I had this manager who wasn't in surf. He was a senior vice president of Time Warner in marketing and production, uh -huh. and he retired and and then took me on as his main project. So I learned everything. I know nothing. I mean, I was a surfer that did not want his face, did not want his name, did not want anything, don't want to talk about what I just did, just mm -hmm. And he's like, you got to make a poster, Karen McNamara, you got to do this, go to that. Well, it was a, there's a convergence of a couple things happening here. I mean, first of all, culturally within surfing, it's not cool to promote yourself. It never had been. It was, you know, the punk rock of it all was to just go out and surf ways for the joy of it. If anybody's paying attention, fine, but you're not gonna be the guy out there throwing stuff up on social media, but that's because social media didn't exist. And also, you know, carving out a career outside of the very narrow scope of what it meant to be a pro competitive <laughs> surfer was starting to change and with with the advent of these new surfing technologies and Toen surfing and all the experimentation that was kind of being led by Laird and his cohort of, of surf renegades. Yeah. Suddenly, and, and then with social media kind of being layered on top of that, there was this sense of possibility, like you could craft or carve out a career 
that lived outside of those traditional notions of how to make a living. But that meant that you had to be not necessarily shameless, but you had to be in control of your own kind of promotional engine and responsible for getting the word out about what you were doing because you know, ultimately you, you have the responsibility to shoulder like getting sponsors and all of that, manager or no manager. Yeah, Laird was the OG, the guru, the guy who broke out of the surfing and went to the and rest showed of the it world. Was possible. And I really watched and learned and really um, embraced how he did things. And so when this senior vice president guy is telling me, you gotta do that, the other thing, I'm like, okay, 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 not what I wanna do, but that's what they're doing, so we'll do it. But so, and that's what, yeah, it was from there, it, the doors just opened. Uh, they started knocking on my door. I didn't have to knock on doors. It was it was amazing. It was the first time in my life I wasn't, hey, please mm -hmm. sponsor me. It was, right, but the business plan's working. Business plan's working. Yeah, you yeah. Are, you're manifesting, you're generating. It's all happening. You're able to pay the bills. It's all about that goal and that, and that yeah. blueprint. It's, uh, it works, but you know what? The number one thing in, in all of our um, in sports or careers or whatever is carving out a niche because a niche has longevity you you might not be the best for more than a year or two but if you have a little niche you're the you're the yogi of this mm -hmm. or you're the jack johnson or you're the photographer you're still in the world you're still in surfing but vicariously through this niche that you carved out so you were conscious of that and what what how would you define the the niche that you were carving out or attempting to carve out at that time I was just the guy who would just put it all the line. Bulletproof. I mean, my friends would call me bulletproof, and I felt bulletproof, mm -hmm. and I had a little flotation that nobody else had. So I was. That coming was your out. little innovation. They didn't realize. They didn't. They were, what are you doing with that? They're laughing and going, hey, hey. and I'm going. Yeah, but anyway, please come, pound me, no problem. I'm coming up. Uh huh. And so they thought I was kind of crazy, but they didn't realize that it was calculated crazy. Mm. <laughs> and at, at what point, I mean, your your first marriage ends up sort of dissolving, right? Around yeah. this time? Yep. What was going on there? Uh, lack of support, um, lack of trust, and rightfully so, I wasn't in the best place. Yeah. Um, and you got you that first marriage. I mean, you got married really young. Yeah. 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 Um, and what's your relationship to like drugs and alcohol and all of that? I mean, you had this crazy childhood where it seemed like it was omnipresent. But did you grow out of that, or was that still part of your world at that time? I smoked pot from twelve to twenty-two. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Stopped in eighty-nine. Um, never really liked the taste of alcohol, but loved a good party. Mm -hmm. Loved, uh, you know, a couple with Coronas with lime tastes good yeah. and with some tequila and then you're having I mean, a you great are Irish. time. Yeah, yeah. Then you're having a great time. Uh, to be honest, cocaine was something that we played with a little bit. When we were really young, we, my brother and I got into it and then I went to Japan when I was 19 and saw that I could have a career. And then that's when I that quit pot, it. quit everything, and then got my brother too. And um, 
I slowly got sucked back into cocaine a bit, and it wasn't wasn't pretty to be honest at all. It wasn't a party anymore. It was just mm-hmm. like dark and. Was that when you were? It was depressed, getting depressed. Yeah. And when you yeah, had the store. Yeah. 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 There was things that to... led up to it. I mean, if I went back, probably some childhood things, but more things that happened in my relationship with my wife that really depressed, made me bummed out about our relationship because Mm -hmm. of things that she did. So uh, I would probably, that was probably what really, I mean, I can't blame anybody. I I take full responsibility. I chose to, you know, Mm -hmm. I chose it. I, I, so it was all me. Um, Was there things that definitely weighed on me that I let weigh on me? Yeah, now I'm choosing not to let anything weigh on me, love it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of the use was kind of situational or environmental. Like when you make these made these decisions at different times to like walk away from it, you were able to do that. So you never went down some like rampant addiction rabbit hole or anything like that. You were able to kind of put it in the rear view when you needed to or need to. It's funny because I would on my birthday, August 10th, I would have one last big party and then I would train and until I accomplished something really huge. And then celebrate. And then at my party again. Yeah. <laughs> and that might go for the rest of the, uh-huh. until my birthday again. <laughs> Is that still going on or? You no, no, longer? I've been, since I met Nicole, right. I've been just. Well, let's uh, talk about Nicole. Like that's yeah. the other huge inflection point. So the inflection points that, that like I'm trying to like, like map it out, like you have, um, you know, moving to Hawaii, of course. And then, you know, there's winning jaws, like these kind of pivotal moments in your life. But certainly I don't, I don't see any more important or monumental pivotal moment in your life that uh, exceeds meeting Nicole and kind of how um, the impact that, that she has had and the, this relationship has had on, on like how you are, not just on your surfing, but like, how you are as a man and and you know what you value and what you're you know choosing to invest your time in etc so talk a little bit about meeting her and kind of what this relationship has meant to you well it's funny you know the the cartoon character i was when i saw laird in them with my jaw on the floor and when i saw her it was like the cartoon character that gets levitates and drags across by his toes to her. Yeah. <laughs> it was just love at first sight. And it was, um, yeah, I was just captivated by her, her beauty, her, her present, just being in her, you know, you're full, she's so present and so inspiring. And so uh, everything that I've dreamed, of, everything that I dreamed of in, in, a, in a partner, a life partner, it, it was, she was right there in front of me. Mm. You guys met in Costa Rica? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. At a yeah. surface healing, Uncle Easy Pasquitz. I was supporting his uh, surface healing event in Puerto Rico and she was there at the charity dinner the night before helping with the flower arrangements through her dad's friend who was doing mm-hmm. the flower arrangements. Mm-hmm. She was there for a race. She's a badass paddler. Mm-hmm. She like, and um, we met and that was it. It was, that was, it was, like there was nothing that could stop it. Eight or something like that? How ten, long? Was nine it? or ten, ten. Ten? Ten. So it was shortly after you guys met that you ended up in Nazare then. I didn't realize that timeline was so compressed. Yeah. Wow. Wow. She comes into your life and then suddenly you guys are in Portugal. 
<laughs> oh, we went on the most amazing <laughs> journey ever. We lived out of a suitcase for three years. Uh-huh. And it was the best time of our life. It, our life is still like too good. I geek, I'm like, pinch me. I can't even believe where yeah. we're at right now. But that was the most, um, we were just present and together. And I mean, as she says, I held on to her every word. I was at, you know, anything and everything she wanted at all times. And the same her for me. And that was before the kids. I think, you know, like I, I can't help but like try to compare your story to my story. And I don't want to make it about me, but, you know, I have a similar, I've, I've had a very similar experience in many ways. And there's something about my relationship with my wife, who's very different from me, that creates a certain kind of powerful alchemy. And I see that in your relationship, like the sum of the two of you together is much greater than the sum of its parts, right? Because of this partnership and what you each bring to this equation, you've been able to you know, accomplish things and manifest things that you know, I'm sure exceed what you would have thought possible for yourself. Yeah, literally, since we've joined forces, we literally strongly, without a doubt, feel that we can pretty much do anything we want, like anything. There's nothing that we can't do if we, want, if we put our mind to it. Yeah, and where does that come from? It comes from, um, well, you know, the secret. Mm-hmm. And then I've read, uh, I've been into Deepak Chopra, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. Sure. But it really comes from, she's very organized. And um, I think most of all, it's because all of our, the things that we focus on are more selfless and somehow we want to give back with whatever we're doing. When you have that aspect to it all, you, you really can't fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that you get the goal, you get the plan, you get the roadmap, but you have a selfless approach to it. That's the secret sauce in everything. If you're in a mindset and have a plan to be giving more than you're receiving or looking to receive, for me, that's always been a recipe for uh, manifesting things even larger than what you imagined. I, I like that. I, yeah. I have to, yes, I yeah. agree with that one. You're the doer and you're the dreamer. Uh, Nicole is very much the structure and the feedback loop and the accountability piece. Is projector. Projector, yeah. projector, of course. Right? There you go, she's smiling over there. Human design, that's another podcast, but yeah, it's a, I get She's it. badass, she, she does yeah. it. Like she has a line of people that want it so bad. Oh, and, cool. But she yeah, I've very rarely it. does one. <laughs> I love it. She's um, really good. But I wanna, I wanna like kind of double click on this and, and really try to deconstruct this process uh, for, for people that are listening or watching. You know, everybody has a dream or something they're trying to accomplish or a goal that feels a little bit out of reach. And it's easy to make excuses or to construct reasons why it's not rational or reasonable or possible. Um, so help me to better understand like the mechanics of your goal setting process the mantras, the manifestations, like what does that look like in terms of, you know, how you're going about your day? Well, the, the, the mantra is loving, kind and helpful. And if we're loving, kind and helpful all day long, I mean, you're gonna feel great because everybody around you is gonna be feel great and everything's gonna unfold as it should. I've been, uh, 
you know, I like to get up really early and do my little meditation. And, and, and when we're really on point, like in the first, I'd say five years, maybe even longer, we would wake up together every morning. We would do our little um, meditation. Then we'd write down what we want to work on personal growth and what we want to work on career. And then we would actually manifest, meditate. Right, so that's a daily thing. Manif yeah, together. A specific answer to those respective questions. Yeah. Right. The, the outcome. The actual outcome. See yourself where you where that goal leads you. Mm -hmm. Live in that reality, feel it, right? To your bones, because you can't experience it. If you're not visualizing it, then um, how is it gonna be possible, right? That's the idea. And don't be too rigidly attached to the end game. Let it morph if it, if it wants to. Let it go this way or that way. Don't be too rigidly attached to the mm -hmm. outcome. So this is a daily practice. You do this in the morning, at night? Morning. We were doing the morning, just morning, too, we at night at it. Sometimes. When, when we were really wanting to create what it was, it was morning and night. Morning and night or yeah. morning and, so twice a day. We haven't done it yeah. since we had the kids. That's eight years now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, like right. See, I invited Nicole to sit in on this. I'm thinking that's the better. I can go get right her now. over here and and <laughs> she we didn't want to do it, the baby. No, she is the best. <laughs> you want to come in for this part? Yeah, come, come on. on in. Bring the as baby. As long as the baby is okay, can she, we? Just, no, that baby's a dream. Can She'll we just, just sit there? Shut, set up the extra mic really quick. I knew we needed to have Nicole on, right? I'm so glad you're joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having Thanks. me. The it's an honor, asleep, truly. So uh, I think we, this is like, this is the juice. This is the best part of the podcast. I wanna <laughs> get deep on the mindset techniques and the manifesting and um, the dream weaving, all the mystical energy that gets injected into, you know, what's what's required to like chase an audacious goal, especially when it feels like the world is lined up against you. It's true. It's the good stuff, yeah. magic. And it is a little bit of magic. I think you have to have that belief that, and you, you have to believe that anything is possible. Mm -hmm. You know, in today's, today's world, it's almost like they don't want us to accomplish our dreams. You know, they fill our days with distractions and, and also maybe, uh, a disbelief in that you have to be a certain way to be successful. And that's just not true. And mm -hmm. that's the beauty about human design, which we've mentioned a couple of times is that, you know, human design is all about deconditioning yourself back to your authentic being so that you can really, your energetic aura can be inviting the universe to send you what you right. are really meant to have. And you can be fully expressed in what you're naturally inclined to do. Right. Yeah. You don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. if that's not what you're meant to do to be mm -hmm. successful. You can still be successful without being exhausted. Mm -hmm. Wait, <laughs> right? what? You don't yeah. have to wake up at 5 a.m.? Well, you're yeah. a generator. You're meant to. <laughs> right. So that's go for the thing it. With all these, like, here's the morning routine. Right. Here's what you need right. to be successful. Well, like, first, understand thyself. Like, how exactly. are you wired? Not everybody is wired the same. Like, exactly. It's super important. My family is. Is, is all generators except our youngest is a, I uh, can't remember whether he's a 
projector or a reflector, but in Ooh. either case, it's yeah. a totally different energy, totally right? Different. This is somebody who needs a lot of alone time, mm -hmm. can go out in the world, but then has to go decompress. Decompress, and, it's really important. And, you know, yeah. has to be invited into things yeah. and as opposed to going out and chasing things. And it's just a different wiring. And like understanding that allows us as parents to figure out a better means to support yeah. that type of energetic system. It really changes the parenting game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing is also, I think it's super important who you surround yourself with when you have these dreams and these goals. You know, your, your team and your team is everyone you surround yourself with. It's not just your team, it's, you know, your friends, it's your family, it's, it's anyone you choose to surround yourself with, you know, they're, they're part of your journey and you have to be with people who really believe in you. Mm -hmm. And when you have these goals with these roadmap um, and I, or yeah. what, what do we call it a roadmap or a blueprint, a blueprint. A blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, it's r really important to understand that every second of every day that you spend not on what's on that map, it will take you further away from your goal. Mm -hmm. Right, it's knowing that every word we speak is a choice, everything we consume in our, on our phones, on the TV, on our computers, and our body, our food is bringing us closer right. or farther well, there away. There is nothing just, static, right. everything is in flux. So every yeah. decision that you make, every interaction that you have, every thought that you entertain, every word that comes out of your mouth is moving you towards the thing that you aspire to yes. achieve or be or away from it. And when you can root yourself in the moment and really appreciate that, it really helps drive a better decision tree and helps you to say no to the things that aren't serving you, et cetera. But you have to overcome all your kind of default programming. For sure, like for there's me, a lot of work to be done. Or yeah. this, you know, yeah. like all this other yeah. noise that gets in the way, right? Yeah. And we like to say that we are by no means the best at mm -hmm. that, but we're always working on it. And we're always working to better ourselves and our lives and, uh, our, and, the, and our team and, and the world. But going back to real tools that you can do, it's, you know, so here you are wanting every choice you make throughout the day to be bringing you closer to these goals you have. So what really helps is, you know, you're making this blueprint of here's my goal, this is what I need to do. And as Garrett said, you know, he put it everywhere. So if you walk into our bathroom on the mirror, expo marker, you know, you have your mantras written, you have your goal written, you get in your car, have a little sticky note, like a great way to do it is take your blueprint, take a picture of it and make it your... Your home yeah. screen. Put on it on your, your home phone. screen on your phone, which you look at a million times exactly. a day. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it the more you see it, the more you're feeling it, and plus the easier it'll be to make the, the sure. decisions that are getting you closer. Yeah. So Garrett, I know that you've said that you're not an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly you have a certain kind of unique relationship with risk and adventure. And I know Nicole has said that like the the riskiest thing you've ever done is get involved with this guy Garrett, right? Like <laughs> your relationship with risk is different. Maybe on a relationship level, like you have a high risk, uh, you know, sort of no, no, tolerance because you well you got involved with him, so you know you're going on some crazy adventure. You know, you didn't. You didn't meet her father. Okay. Well, well, I saw it. Well, I saw him. I'm like, that guy looks like a character. Uh, he's a he is character. a yeah. character. That's the only way to describe him as character. But I really, 
you had the most beautiful description of our relationship that I've ever heard is that, you know, the alchemy of it. And, you know, I, I always say, you know, that we were brought together for a reason. Like, Mm -hmm. it's really clear that we're together because we can do great, you know, help the world a little bit. And when we started the documentary, you know, I told them, I was like, look, we'll do this, but there is no way that I'm making a surf movie. Like if you guys have any desire to make a surf movie, we're out of here. The only way I'm doing this and us putting our time in it is if it's inspiring. Like I want Mm -hmm. people to walk away knowing that it truly is. It's like never too early and never too late to follow your dreams. And on top of that, when people say you can't do it, like the doctor said, you're probably never going to surf again. Your arm's never going to work again. Like that's a big thing to mentally overcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are going to face adversity every day of people who don't think they can do it because people don't want them to do it because then that means they're going to have to go do it. Right. You know, it's like this comfort. It puts puts you right in your face. Like if if this guy, so when you surf the, 78 footer, that was 2011, right? We're the same age. I think we're the (laughs) same age. So that that makes you uh, 44 at the time? 43, okay, right. So I love that. Like that's that's, that same year is kind of when I was hitting my peak as an athlete and doing things I didn't think was possible. And that's a story that's inspiring to other people, but what people don't get or realize or appreciate is in the lead up to that, when you're doing the reps and the work to get to that point, not a lot of support. Like a lot of people are, because it's challenge, like, oh, if you're doing that, that that means that maybe I should be um, deconstructing how I'm living. And that's scary for a lot of people for understandable reasons, right? So you can't expect that kind of support, which means your nucleus, like the people that you surround yourself with are super important. And this bond that you guys have is really the key to, you know, everything. It is like the the nuclear power generator for all of what has transpired. Yeah. 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 It's cool. And I, and so I am interested in like when when did the the documentary like when did these guys approach you? I mean, Chris Smith is not going to make a surf documentary. Like he's no. a super experienced. He's going to he's going to tell really interesting nuanced Tiger King. Yeah, tales like <laughs> Yeah, it's like, this guy knows what he's doing. He's not like a surf documentarian. <laughs> he wants so, to tell a story. She doesn't like to take credit for us going to Nazare uh, because she answered the email and got us there, even though we wouldn't have went if she didn't get on the email chain. But this documentary 100% would never have happened without her. And because she's a projector, um, she's very organized and she wrote a little treatment that uh, was just super inspiring. Um, everything's possible. Mm. And- um, Well, we, it was really, it was really gonna focus on Garrett, Cotty and CJ because CJ broke his back, Cotty broke right. his back. Garrett CJ had is the, your brother. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Garrett's, shoulder injury. So it was really about how the human spirit is limitless and we're all limitless, an inspirational one hour documentary. And one I was, and a half, one and a half. yeah, I was going to do it. We were going to do it ourselves, you know, like gorilla. It. And um, my cousin is married to Joe Lewis, the producer. Mm. So I had called just for advice and he's like, oh, this is really good. And, you know, it just worked out that he's like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it if you want. So I knew 
in that agreement that I was pretty much giving away right. all creative direction. So he came on board as the producer, and the first thing he did was get Chris Smith. But it's really funny when talking to Chris. If you ask Chris, he'll be like, yeah. No interest. When Joe said surf, surfing? I was like, no way. Right. I have no interest. But I'll, but I'll talk to Garrett. For, Just, for Joe. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we had bro. this Zoom call and... Uh, Chris says, the only reason I did it is because Garrett's just so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Joe did it because he said, this is gonna win an Oscar. Uh But the one and a half hour version. Yeah, so what was the decision to make it a series as opposed to a standalone documentary? Well, I guess they they somehow got missed that we had archival footage from Mm, yeah. A long, a long time ago. So like, oh, we sent him just bigger. literally a suitcase full of Tape, of hard drives, hard drives, full of. And when they when they saw how much they had, they they were like, "This has to be a docu series." Right. Yeah. And, and now, Nicole was crushed. She was like, yeah. "My Oscar!" Oh, no, <laughs> but Joe's like, "Don't worry, we'll get an Emmy." I'm like, "All right." <laughs> won the Emmy. Come on, you know. And oh. then uh, and, and now we have two. season two. Season two. So which, you must have already. Oh, you've been shooting better. that. Yes. Yeah, so is it already wrapped. It's one. really hard. Yes, it's uh-huh. hard to believe, but. Season two is better yeah. than season one. When is that going to premiere? Uh, January. Probably January. Oh, in January. Oh, that's yeah. coming up quick. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, congrats. That's Thank you. unbelievable. Thank you. Um, Nicole, when you, I'm sure you've gotten asked this before, but you know, when when Chris is like, Garrett is so interesting. Like, what is that quality in Garrett that makes him different or? capable of surfing these big waves. Like, how do you think about that? Like, what is his secret sauce in in that recipe of uniqueness? Well, it's interesting. And I'm gonna take it back to human design You know, it's funny, again. that yeah. interesting word. I use that instead of saying <laughs> something that a negative. Pejorative? Instead yeah. of saying, well, that's so, so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> instead of saying something negative, but a lot. <laughs> for you, for people that are just <laughs> listening and not bad? watching on YouTube, like he's making googly eyes. <laughs> right, right, like, right. I mean, you're very animated and like, you're your own character, you know, like you're a cartoon character of yourself in the yeah, best right? way. And I'm not saying that okay, pejoratively, okay. like I like in a very, you know, endearing way. Okay. So, and there, there's an earnestness to you, you know, like yeah, he's a sense charismatic. Of, it's he's there's just, a there's a but it's not performative charisma. It's like, who it's he an really is, exactly. Yeah. And that's why I take it back to human design. So generators are meant to have these just super open auras that just attract everything to them because they're just so glowing and mm-hmm. fun and light and and genuine. And what happens is we become conditioned our whole life to shut that down. And as much as I will say that Garrett's childhood was completely disturbing, he didn't really get conditioned, you know, his authentic, like, there's a, cares, there, yeah, yeah, like yeah. open aura. A beginner's mind and yes, a childlike. Uh, an a innocence. Childlike, yeah, yeah. There's an innocence to him mm-hmm. that makes him just, you know, he's, he's a lover. Mm-hmm. Like, he has just a super loving heart at the end of the day. He's, he's really a gentle, gentle person. Mm-hmm. How does that <laughs> translate into the parenting 
stop. Oh, well, let's not even go there. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> well, it's funny when he tries to parent. I'm like, where are you? Like, do you have scientific? Well, he, you have no right. Exactly. No, that's what I say. No I said exactly. So I'm like, so how do you know that this is working? <laughs> have you read a book? If you've read a book and you have some uh, research to back it up, yeah. there's something to be said for that <laughs> in this day and age. Like, and I'm sure there's a lot of that in your in your kids' experience, but. I'm very lucky that they're very open to letting the kids experience things. Yeah, right. are you capable of disciplining your kids? Mm, I, I mean, definitely not uh, <laughs> physically, but um, no, I mean, actually, I would probably grab you, their ear and pull them. Can you did, set a boundary? Did, did, did you hear can, are, me? Do you know how to set a boundary, like with your kids? At or times, like, I yeah. mean, it depends it's, on what the because you don't have, you never have no, one. Yeah, it's like so he goes, I don't know? know. He always says when he has the kids, he's like, I don't know. It was so easy. I'm like, yeah, because you let them do whatever they wanted to do right. and gave them whatever they wanted. But you, <laughs> as a as a professional athlete who's done things nobody else has done, there is a certain you have a capacity for discipline and rigor in your life. Like you weren't taught that; that wasn't part of your rearing, right? But yeah. you've learned that for yourself and you've kind of shouldered the responsibility of creating that structure so that you could accomplish these goals. And I'm sure I'm sure Nicole is helpful in that regard, but like, it's like an unlikely story that you would become somebody who could, you know. Uh, parent some children? Well, parent yourself. <laughs> like you had, to, you had to parent yourself, yeah. right? So you had to learn these things outside of the household. But I'm interested in like, you know, the discipline, the rigor, the accountability piece, all of that, you know, as a professional athlete, like how did you figure that out? I don't know, I was, I was always into health, eating healthy, whether I did it all the time or not. I already, I was aware from a, from mm -hmm. young. Uh, yeah, cause we'd been vegetarians and I, and I you know, I, we grew so many different vegetables and fruit trees. So I, they used to call me Luther Burbank. Mm a world renowned botanist mm -hmm. you might have heard. Um, but just because maybe from lack, wanting to achieve, figuring out how to actually achieve, how to succeed. And then just, I don't know how I actually, uh, well, there's a business plan for dummies was definitely the catalyst <laughs> for the for the ends, for yeah. what, where I am now and after 35. Right, after but in the, in, the in, the, in, in the context of being an athlete, being a high performance athlete, like what does the training look like? Like how do you prepare mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually to drop in on a wave of that gravitas? I love training and I love working out with a group of people, but I also like working out with the, just trip by myself with a trainer. And back in the day, I would, uh, I had my gym, so I would do my weights and I would ride my bike up Pupakea Hill. And then I would go to the track at uh, Sunset Beach and run this quarter mile track where there was uh, benches every, on one leg of it. And I would do hold my breath exercises there. And that was enough. I credit my, uh, all my, all the experience I've had under water were enjoyable because I did my hold my breath exercises. Mm -hmm. Today, there's so much more, there's so many different there's so much breath work, uh, even Iceman, we got Wim Hof, we got um, just it's all these free divers. I mean, there's so many different tools now that yeah. we can access through social media, through friends. Uh, the breath and, work thing was really interesting. You brought in a free diver to teach you guys, yeah. uh, you know, how to do static breath holds. And Nicole, you got to like three and a half minutes or yeah, something like that, like hours. doing that. But yeah. like, that was so cool that you're like, let's 
we need to learn this. If yeah. we're gonna be on these waves, like this is gonna be a key thing to understand. And then the, the um, there's so many good trainers. I was just in Austin, Texas training with all these trainers. I loved it. I have a personal trainer in Hawaii, Sherry Gunaway, who's a godsend. She is just so hands-on and she actually does the body work, which is the best in the world that I've ever experienced. And I've had it all treatments all over the world. And she's also like a psychic and I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I trained with Kyborg, a functional fitness gym, and then Daniel Bachman up at Sunset. And in Portugal, there's a gym right in Nazareth. There's two or three gyms in Nazareth. Mm -hmm. But that's more I work, do that on my own. I like working with the crew. Right. I like working with somebody or, or a few people. And talk to me about the yoga piece. So this forest yoga is like a big have deal ever, for have you Have you guys. ever tried No, it? no, no. no. She's you really ever amazing. want to do yoga? Yeah. Forest yoga is by far the best we've ever experienced, and we've. Well, I love it because it's really you know, yoga now nowadays. What does it actually mean? Right, and today it's just you know, I don't think it is what it is today is not what it's meant to be, mm -hmm. and that's why I really love forest yoga is because it kind of takes it back to what it should be. Um, well, I shouldn't even say should, but what it you know what it is <laughs> and I love the ceremony part aspect of it too which they didn't show much of that in the series but you know every uh every class starts out with a ceremony like this deep ceremony of gratitude and and the land that our ancestors and and then it's also about really how you were saying the guy you had on your podcast last week, it's, mm -hmm. you know, we hold our trauma in our body and it's using the postures to move that trauma mm -hmm. out of the body. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, th I thought it would be really great for Garrett, you know, not only from his childhood traumas, but also his physical traumas and the scar tissue and for all three of them. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's great. Yoga's, yoga, I hate saying yoga, but yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's super important mm -hmm. for your mental and physical. Right. Yeah. And your your spiritual growth. Yeah, yeah. Of course. You know, so forest yoga, it's not forest like trees, it's anaphores. Yeah, anaphores. What was the name of the book that she wrote? Oh my God. Fierce Medicine. Yeah, yeah, good job. She's wow. just, mm -hmm. she's fierce. So powerful. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> and beyond that, like, so, all right, so you have the weights and you have the breath holds and you have the, breathing techniques, the cold baths, yeah, like all that kind of stuff. Nice like bath. what else is part of, like, I feel like because big wave surfing is still pretty new, right? Like figuring out, like, how do you prepare for something like this? Like, what is the best methodology to get you, right? Like you have to be physically sound and strong, of course. And there's techniques for accomplishing that, but like, how do you mentally and emotionally get your head in the right place to tackle, you know, that kind of, fear-inducing, you know, For endeavor. me, it's being physically prepared, you strength and, and stamina, you breath. Then I'm mentally, I, I haven't been back to where I was before I got hurt physically. So I'm still stuck, challenged with the mental a little bit. Always wondering if I'm actually gonna enjoy it still. Cause I always enjoyed it. Didn't yeah. matter what was going on. And now I'm kind of, eh. and I- Can you get back? Yeah, and uh, the breath, Work is so important uh, leading up, you know, for two weeks, 
minimum, a month or two better. Mm -hmm. And then on your way out and while engaging breath work, like mm -hmm. on your way out, you breathe up. So you're hyper oxygenated. Then you're sitting there waiting for a while. Okay, keep doing your breathing. You're getting ready to take that way. Wake, make sure you, you, you were high, you know, oxygenated beyond. And so when you actually, uh, if you don't make the wave, the beatdown will be enjoyable. Um, mm. If you're not ready, it'll be super stressful and you could end up pa passing out. Mm -hmm. But then the your body has to be able to the, hold together. Yeah. What? The breath work, I think, is the most important. No spoiler alerts, but uh, season two, you know, CJ has this situation where he says, like, if it wasn't for all my breath work, he probably we wouldn't passed be here. out. Yeah. Wow. We would have found him. Okay. Wow. But yeah. It's, I think, because along with the breath work, depending which kind you practice, you know, a lot of the breath work practices these days also, you know, touch on the spiritual and the mm -hmm. emotional part. And, you know, you can go to places through breath work that, you know, you can reach some traumas and yeah. heal, heal, heal. You can uh, heal through breath work. You can have a medicine experience yeah. from the, what is yeah. it? Yeah. The holotropic? holotropic. Yeah. Oh yeah. my yeah. God, I've, I've gone to yeah. places <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> Like who needs who needs medicine yeah, I, right here? Breath. We, my wife takes groups of people through those experiences, and then we all get together and share. And it's crazy what happens to people. Yeah, they yeah. have insane emotional breakthroughs. They go to different places and are and like it's just the in, breath inhabiting the yeah. bodies of animals and like yeah. all kind. It's like <laughs> yes. wilder than any kind of psychedelic mm -hmm. experience. It's, it's very very powerful, and I think we're just at the beginning of truly learning and understanding the power of breath and how to harness it for all manner of things beyond just respiration. You know, it's, it's super interesting. Um, in, the, in the kind of context of your story, I mean, it's super inspiring to see somebody blossom and really find their, their, their power uh, like later in life. You know, I feel like so many people feel like the story of their life is written at 25, this is who I am, this is my career, this is where I live, these are my people, and this is just gonna be my thing, right? And you know, I've experienced a, a later in life kind of transition or uh, you know, kind of different kind of trajectory for my life. And I see kinship in what, in what you've done in a different way, you know, doing it later in life. And so I think it would be instructive to share a little bit about you know, what that has been like. Like you could have stayed running that store. You could have stayed doing what you were always doing and kind of succumbing to the the pressures of just this is what life is supposed to be like as an adult. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to break free of that and to take a risk and try something different, especially when you're in your late thirties or forties and you, you know, kind of doing what you're doing now into your fifties, like with no end in sight, I think it helps really, it helps people raise the ceiling on their perception of what's possible for themselves. Definitely. Mm. Well, what was it? What yeah. was it? Yeah, what made you at 35 decide this, you know, I know this isn't what I want for my life, so I'm going to go for it instead of, because most people would just, I know well, I don't like I mean, this, but this is what I'm supposed to do. I just wanted to keep surfing. <laughs> yeah, but I think what it is, Nicole, it goes to something you said earlier, which is is because Garrett had this unique childhood experience where he wasn't conditioned in the way most of us 
were, he's been able to maintain a connection with his childlike sensibilities and what what gives and gave him joy, right? Like you've talked about, like if you're struggling to figure out what that is, like go back to when you were three years Mm -hmm. old, right? But we have so much conditioning and programming to prevent us from looking in the rear view in that way and connecting deeply emotionally with those very pure kind of primal impulses that we had as as young people, right? But I feel like you've, you, what's unique about you is like that connective tissue was never ruptured. Yeah, I, I feel like in this world we're um, conditioned to settle and to just do what we're supposed to do. And somehow through my uh, childhood and, and all of my life, I, I was not doing what you're supposed to besides that one point in time when I had the store and it just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, just like in my marriage, I didn't want to, you know, I settled. And at the end of the day, I moved on and I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't. And uh, you know, I, I really work on not having any regrets, whether you felt it was categorized as a bad decision or not. I, I work on not having any regrets. And, mm-hmm. and through that journey, I, I've released any regrets that I may have had or any, um, whew, yeah, I don't know. So for somebody who's maybe grappling with their own discontentment. What is the recommendation or the advice that you could give to that person to help them kind of connect with something deeper that might help them reckon with it? That's easy. Figure out what you love doing. Figure out what you're that's hard, passionate though. about. Yeah, that, how, that's how hard. How do you do that? I okay. Yeah. I would start well, that's what with I said. Probably... Go back to when you were three. <laughs> yeah. Or the I I think the me- the medicine the beauty Ooh. way the medicine wheel really helped you the book. I mean, yeah, the book is great because it, it they Anna, sim- this is Anna no, no, Ford. this oh, is the, the medicine, medicine wheel. wheel. Um, oh, I don't know. This it's book. amazing. It's, yeah, but it's, it's, hard to get it's a hold great of. because it's really simplified it so that people can do the exercises in their living room if they want. They don't have to go into to the, the forest the for mm-hmm. four days with no food and water. I mean, they could. It's mm-hmm. helpful, but the book has set it up to really, you know kind of look at the things that are causing the pain and holding you back and how to work through it. Right. Well, figure out what you think you like doing or <laughs> better to love doing it. And then um, figure out how to make that your life and what the goal, okay, I love doing this. How do I make that a career? And then you make the roadmap, you make the blueprint and you follow it and you'll be doing it. And as I said, don't stay rigidly attached. If it morphs to another direction, go check that out. Um, if if you achieve it and you're really here and you're like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be, then go, go at it again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that idea of holding it loosely is important because if you are too rigid, then you're, you're short-circuiting your ability to be available for the miracle. Yeah. Because the miracle doesn't show up in a prepackaged way <laughs> on time as predicted. It yeah. doesn't work that way, right? It's a meandering path and you kind of have to have that North Star that's driving you, but also be kind of available and open to the turns in the road along the way. Because sometimes when those are, those are the messages that actually like lead you towards the greater opportunity that didn't even occur to you. Yeah. The yeah, great the, unknown. Yeah. The one path leads to a totally new path you right. never thought even existed. Yeah. 
Oh, she's getting nancy don't worry we're gonna wrap it up here i mean maybe that um i do think uh, i know you asked him about fear Uh i do think he missed some key uh, yeah there is um fear is you know something that we choose something we manufacture in our mind and it's when we're thinking about the past or thinking about the future and those two things do not exist so if we fully embrace the moment and just think about where we are in that moment and do our best in that moment. Fear does not exist. It can't It can't it, live in the present moment. It doesn't. Mm. Yeah, that's a, powerful. We had a, a great guy, uh, Kent, you know, he taught us PCP, just be PCP. And you know, that's what he does out what in the water. And P- present. present. And so when you're fully present, then you're connected to source, to spirit, mm-hmm. and then you're gonna be protected. So present, so, connected, protected. Yeah. PCP, so baby. It's really yeah. being Not what present. you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> A different kind of, yeah. The other PCP. Connect, no, thank yeah, you. Maybe not so present or connected. <laughs> Definitely not protected. Oh. No. Um, all right. Well, what's on the, uh, what are on all the sticky notes now? Like what's on the, the, the screensaver on the on the iPhone, like what is the well, dream, the goal? Do I have a picture of it here? I don't know. It's on uh, the you? fridge, the latest yeah, it one. It is somewhere, it's, but. It's been morphing lately. We, Be we conscious just, parents. <laughs> conscious yeah. parenting, definitely at the top. There's a few projects in the pipeline. You don't you, you might remember some of it that's important. What What are the goals right now that Love your wife. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you need a sticky note for that? Come on. I just tell him, like, if you just love me, then I'll do everything else. Everything. Because I'll be so watered and blossoming that I'll just want to do everything. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, cool. All right. Cool. Um, and you she agrees. Are you, uh, so you split the, you split your time between Hawaii and uh, Nazare now, right? Like you, li- you have a home there and you live yeah. in Portugal yeah. half the year. Yeah. Yeah, we love Portugal. We, uh, we love Hawaii. We love LA. Uh-huh. Um, we have really good quality friends here. And we're really, you know, like she was saying, it's all about who you surround yourself with. And, and uh, the funny one is, do you want to hang out on the, on the ground and with the chickens and eat worms or you want to soar with the eagles? So we've been really focusing on um, quality friends. And another one, for lack of a better word, expanders, people mm-hmm. that you look up to or aspire to be like or, or really inspire you. And they don't have to be wealthy or anything, just mm-hmm. inspirational people that have goodness, nothing about wealth. Yeah, that's good health, advice. Man. Health is wealth. Number one is health above all. There you go, buddy. Um, cool. Well, I feel like we just touched the surface on what I could talk to you guys about, but um, I think we can wrap it up for today. That was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm really inspired by the journey that the two of you guys are on. And uh, I can't wait to see season two, man. It's exciting. You guys are Emmy award winners now. It's crazy. You got season two coming up in January. And uh, I wanna see all your goals manifest, my friend. So consider me a, a resource if there's anything I can do to, to help either of you. But, Thank you. And yeah. you, uh, us as well for you, mm-hmm. whenever you come to Hawaii or Portugal, let us know. Cool. Um, so obviously everybody should check out 100 Foot Wave on HBO. Uh, HBO Max, um, where else should people 
go to learn more about you guys? Your Mac, Instagram? McNamara underscore S. Mm-hmm. And, and that's McNamara for, family. and then we've got, and then yours is like mama, mama yeah, mama unearthed, right? That's good, I like that. She's the philosopher. <laughs> she is. Leave no stone unturned. Right. Um, no yeah. unearthing your essence. Yeah. Unearth your essence. Selves are like you completely deconditioned. Unearth our real selves. 100%. <laughs> Listen to her. All right. Right? Um, cool. Come back and, and share with me again sometime. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.